2: It finally happened. The blessed day arrived. All of the waiting, the preparing, the nerves. It's all led up to this. You have a beautiful baby. The world is fundamentally different. More wondrous, but also more fragile. Full of sharp-toothed dangers around every corner. Waiting to snag this perfect, soft, dozing bundle you can't believe you're holding in your arms. You want to protect that defenseless child from anything that would ever seek to harm him or her. But then, within weeks, the powers that be tell you to let some so-called doctor stab this precious baby with a cold needle full of toxins and diseases and formaldehyde and mercury and aluminum and God knows what else. And if you refuse, you're ostracized from society, shut out from public institutions. All just for trying to protect the most important thing in the world. Your own child. I... Dad? What? Uh, hey. What, honey? I told you Daddy was going to his podcast closet to record the show.
3: Yeah, yeah, your little show. I'm so proud of you. It's totally normal to have your dad go into a closet and talk to a microphone. Whatever. Whatever. But I thought I heard you saying something that agreed with those crazy anti-vax people.
2: Well, yeah, I was, but it's just for the show's cold open. That's the part where I introduce the conspiracy we're covering from the perspective of someone who believes in it. But then I spend the rest of the episode tearing down their ideas and making fun of them.
3: Wait, you're doing an episode on anti-vax?
2: Yeah. Though it's kind of hard, because every time I think about them, my blood boils.
3: You think they make you mad? I have to go to school with their diseased kids. You understand these parents are so worried about these imaginary vaccine dangers. They're willing to expose me to deadly plague. Science nearly wiped out decades ago. You know what? I got this. Get up, Dad! get out
2: of. Get up
3: why why are you throwing? just hey, this is my podcast closet. I've got something to say to the Straniacs. Wait, you actually called them that?
2: Yes,
0: be nice.
3: Oh, I'll be nice. I'm awkward Jesuit, daughter of that fearful Jesuit. And to all you aunts, uncles, grandpas, and grandmas, and especially your parents, I just want to say that you folks either have direct control or serious influence on whether or not the kids in your families get vaccinated So I hope you step up to the challenge. Vaccinate your children so they don't get diseases that could sicken or even kill them. And even more importantly, so they don't give them to me. This is important. We kids are counting on you. Don't give in to this paranoid strain.
4: expect me
2: to talk? No, Mr. Conspiracy Theorist. I expect you to die. (laughs) Oh, hey there, everybody. Let me just finish this up. (gasps) And there we go. Welcome back to the Paranoid Strain, your home away from home when regular home gets too crazy. Every couple months, we assemble the conspiracy-debunking Avengers and chop off the head of the Thanos of credulous thinking and unsupported assertions.
5: Bonus point for anyone who can tell what Blockbuster came out when he was writing the script.
2: Any new true believers joining us this week are in for a treat. That treat? Our ever-growing archive of episodes covering conspiracy theories from imaginary Jewish control of a secret world government to the long and impactful history of assassinations, both JFK and non-JFK varieties. In past shows, we took each of these topics and interrogated the ideas, misunderstandings, personalities, impacts, and other elements that continue to make them unfortunately relevant to our increasingly odd modern world. We do this to help you understand why your aesthetician, your meter reader, and that guy next to you on the bus every Wednesday, you know the one, who stares unblinkingly into the space three inches to your left, why they all believe in such weird conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit a man who has somehow roped you into his self-aggrandizing plan to giggle along with his own jokes every two months. With my long-suffering fellow narrator, the inestimable Dana Unicorn, as well as the musical talents of the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and an array of other periodic contributors, I try to arm you with the facts you need to parry nonsensical ripostes wherever you find them. So turning back to our current topic, I have to admit to all of you listeners out there that this is a show I have deliberately put off as long as I thought I could. Not because it isn't important or interesting. In fact, the history of vaccination, both medical and conspiratorial, is among the most riveting and deeply affecting stories of the past couple of centuries. And it's unquestionably vital that those of us who accept reality do our part to counter the seemingly ceaseless tide of misinformation, fear, bad health advice, and sheer rage that has been aimed at responsible scientists, researchers, and even, dare I say it, pharmaceutical companies. (laughs)
5: Calm down. We're not going to shill for some of the most profitable and oftentimes rapacious firms operating in the modern world. The pharma industry is responsible for an array of sins, both venial and mortal. But the vaccine-producing arms of these price-gouging behemoths have benefited more humans than just about any other industry in the history of the earth. And don't argue with us, because we're right.
2: No, the reason I've avoided this one is because talking about the anti-vax conspiracy theories makes me angry. It makes me reflexively hate the people occupying the other side of the argument in a way that few other mainstream conspiracies do. Oh, of course I have nothing but disdain for the racists who promulgate the protocols of the elders of Zion. But I don't hate the chemtrails or flat earth or QAnon believers. I pity them. And I hope to encourage, through my show's tiny contribution, the flourishing of a more skeptical society that will gently nudge them in the direction of truth, that will help them see the flaws in their reasoning, and will thereby make it possible for them to attain one of the most satisfying feelings in the world. Going to bed, knowing that when you wake up tomorrow, you'll be less wrong than you were this morning. But to be honest with you, I find it tough to take this attitude with anti-vaxxers. As was heavily implied in the cold open, I am a father. Moreover, I am an almost rabidly pro-vaccine father.
5: That may not be the best way to phrase that sentiment.
2: Who lives in the Bay Area. This is in many ways a wonderful place to raise a kid, in terms of the diversity of culture, the opportunities for intellectual enrichment, how easy it is to get an Uber, etc. But it's also one of the biggest nests of anti-vaccine sentiment in the United States. Well, sure, you might be thinking, but people everywhere have a lot of crazy ideas. True but most of those ideas don't lead directly to a situation where their misunderstanding of the risks and benefits can directly imperil the health of your own child, in spite of your own best efforts. Awkward Jesuit, as she chose to name herself, is fully vaccinated, but in spite of the state of California's honestly heroic efforts to improve the situation through tough-minded public policy choices,
5: More on that later.
2: she's still much more likely than kids in saner parts of the rest of the country to be attending school with a child whose parents... Could easily have gotten their son or daughter fully vaccinated, chose not to for incredibly stupid reasons, are also the kind of well healed, doting parents who will take their kids traveling to exotic foreign locations so that little Tantra and Melchior can be exposed to the best of the world's cultures.
5: And, of course, the diseases that too often still plague those less fortunate, yet still super educational and exotic nations.
2: Therefore, Awkward has a far better chance of being exposed to the measles, mumps, rubella, or even fucking polio, than should be the case, given that she lives in the goddamn technological epicenter of our current civilization in 20-goddamned-19. And I only mention all of this because...
5: Well, to be honest, he mentions it to anyone in the vicinity, at high volume, and for probably much longer than the rules of politeness would suggest, whenever the topic comes up.
2: True. But in this case, I'm mentioning it because I really want all of you to try to remember some of the key points from this show long after you listen. Keep them in your mental back pocket. Not so you can argue with anonymous anti-vax phantasms on Facebook. No, because whether or not you're a parent yourself, the odds are really good that you have influence over someone who's charged with raising a child. Your brothers and sisters, your daughters and sons, your friends and co-workers. Somebody in that list is going to have a baby someday. And there's a decent chance that this new parent will be tempted with some of the bad ideas and information we'll be covering here. This putative mom or dad we're imagining, that person won't listen to me. But he or she will listen to you. And when that moment comes...
5: And we guarantee it will for some significant subset
2: of you. I want you to have all of the facts at your disposal. I want you to know off the top of your head some counterpoints to the nonsense spewed constantly by the anti-vax movement. Because if your cousin's kid believes the earth is flat, you ridicule him behind your cousin's back over drinks with your friends. But if your cousin's kid doesn't get vaccinated he can be the cause for the truly horrific suffering of innocent children. With that, the lecture portion of this show has ended.
5: Wow, optimistic.
2: Now it's time to walk through some history and discover what vaccines are, how humans figured them out, and how we got into our current state of popular anti-vax affairs. Yes, that was our anti vax theme. And no, I don't understand why it's a calypso tune any more than you do, asked Daniel Arizona. It's almost insipid to say this out loud, but our limited, tentative victories over the diseases that bedeviled and tortured our species for hundreds of thousands of years stand as one of the human race's greatest achievements. I don't want to belabor the statistics, as I don't think anyone argues that we aren't much better off in this area than our ancestors. But a few hundred years ago, your child’s odds of surviving to age five were much lower than 50/50. Writing in the London Journal in 2013, researchers Peter Rizel and Christine Spence note that in the titular capital city, two-thirds of all children, rich and poor, died before their fifth birthdays. Even in the less catastrophic early 19th century, nearly one-third of kids died in this period. These sad statistics had been the norm for thousands of years, spiking in times of plague, dipping somewhat in other eras. It's hard to imagine now, when we who are blessed to live in the developed world are shocked and horrified by the very idea of childhood suffering.
5: And where our equivalent mortality statistics are far below 1%.
2: Remember, still, that a significant amount of the improvement in human life expectancy over the past several hundred years was actually a result of keeping many more young children alive, so that they could in turn become superannuated adults.
5: Some very unpleasant math. If you have three people, and two of them live to 60, and one of them lives to two, your average life expectancy is just over 40 years. If every third two-year-old doesn't die of smallpox, and instead lives to 55, life expectancy jumps to 59.
2: To do the anti-vaxxers work for them a bit here, it's certainly true that a number of factors contributed to those seemingly miraculous improvements. Radically cleaner sanitation, better nutrition and reductions in the incidence of famine in many parts of the world, as well as vastly improved medical and especially obstetric practices.
5: Please, please, please don't talk about the 19th century doctors and the women in labor and the unsterilized instruments. Pretty please?
2: Okay, fine, Miss Squeamish. Anywho, there's no doubt there were many reasons why childhood mortality, and mortality in general, took a nosedive over the past couple centuries. But the most important single contributor was widespread vaccination. How many lives are we talking here? According to the World Health Organization, between two and three million lives are saved per year, the majority of them children.
5: More tragically, the WHO notes that an additional one and a half million kids could be saved if global vaccination rates improved.
2: Clearly, this is a phenomenally effective intervention. But to get a better idea of just how much it's impacted the modern world, we'll turn to the two authors who will be our guides through the factual science-based portion of our program. Seth Mnookin, author of The Panic Virus, and Paul Offit, author of Deadly Choices, who's also the MD on the front lines of the pro-vaccine argument. In each of their excellent books, these gentlemen offer us an overview of the horrendous state of affairs that prevailed before vaccination, as well as the highs and lows that transpired as vaccination developed from a mysterious force into a well-understood, replicable scientific principle. To see just how significant vaccination can be, let's consider how many people infectious diseases have killed since recognizably modern humans have evolved on Earth. Dana, do you have that figure?
5: Yes. Well, technically it's still printing out the zeros. Um, ah, okay. The answer is north of 54 billion.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, hold on, really? Over 50 billion? With a B?
5: That's what it says.
2: Out of how many people total?
5: Current estimates, 108 billions or so humans have ever existed on Earth.
2: So, like, probably more than half of everybody ever.
5: Actually, there are some suggestions that 50 billion of those people were killed by just one disease.
2: Just one? Jesus. Was it the Black Plague?
5: Nope. That's only 240 million or so. Smallpox? 500 million.
2: Horrifying, but small change by comparison. Well, what was it?
5: Malaria. By a mile.
2: Yes, malaria. These estimates of the total death count wrought throughout human history by this disease are still contested, but it's widely considered to be the most prolific killer we've ever known, which in turn makes the deadliest animal, not the shark...
5: Hear that? Sharks aren't even close, Mr. Arizona
2: but rather the lowly mosquito, a.k.a. the chief carrier of malaria. If you want to understand how much impact malaria has had on humans, consider this. There is a serious genetic syndrome called sickle cell disease, which causes sufferers to produce red blood cells that have a strange, scythe-like shape. This condition causes a wide array of impacts on affected people, including both acute and chronic lifelong pain, swelling of the extremities, susceptibility to infection, vision problems, and anemia
5: i.e. the fatigue caused by a lack of oxygen in the blood due to the fact that these sickle-shaped cells are fragile and usually leave the sufferer with fewer blood cells to carry that oxygen.
2: Sounds pretty horrendous, right? Seems like the kind of thing that the blind, pitiless hand of evolution would have wiped out of our species long ago as unfit. And maybe it would, except for one little thing.
5: Turns out that having the sickle cell gene confers greater-than-normal immune system protection against
2: malaria. That's right. And you don't have to have the syndrome to get that protection. Actually, most people who have it simply carry the sickle cell gene, but don't experience symptoms of the disease. So in other words, malaria is such a motherfucker that it was evolutionarily advantageous for a population to carry the gene around, periodically passing along a horrible syndrome to some unsuspecting human, if it meant that everyone else was just a bit more protected against this mosquito-borne plague.
5: We feel like the anti-vaxxers might want to consider how that call-bitch mother nature handles disease protection before declaring that vaccines are bad because they aren't, quote, natural enough.
2: Unfortunately, while there is an approved vaccine for the disease, it's not super effective or very well distributed, and thus a million or so people still die of malaria each year. So scientists have not yet defeated the number one historical infectious disease killer. But what about number two? The silver medal in this horrific competition goes to smallpox, which, as we noted earlier, may have nearly half a billion people throughout history on its non-existent viral conscience. Or, as Dr. Paul Offit notes in Deadly Choices, its tally is
5: more than the Black Death and all the wars of the 20th century combined.
2: Moreover, from what we've read, it was a truly horrible thing to experience, as Manukin puts it in The Panic Virus.
5: It is one of the world's all-time nastiest diseases. After a dormant period, the virus erupts into action, causing bouts of severe anxiety, lacerating headaches, and back aids and crippling nausea. Within days, small rashes begin to cover the hands, feet, face, neck, and back. For an unlucky minority, these rashes lead to internal hemorrhaging that causes victims to bleed out from their eyes, ears, nose, and gums.
2: And those who survived were often severely scarred by the blisters that would erupt all over the skin, or they were left permanently blind. The disease in its typical form would kill about a third of those who contracted it. However, there were strains that were far deadlier, including hemorrhagic smallpox, which... What does Wikipedia say? Uh, actually, Dana, could you do the honors here?
5: Thanks. In hemorrhagic smallpox, the skin did not blister, but remained smooth. Instead, bleeding occurred under the skin, making it look charred and black. Hence, this form of disease was also known as the blackpox.
2: Ugh. Yeah, fucking horrendous. But fortunately, one day in 1796, an English country doctor met a buxom young...
5: I feel like I saw this on cinemax.
2: Mind out of the gutter, unicorn. Actually, let's back this up a bit. England, like every place else on Earth, has been plagued... Sorry. ...by the smallpox since its earliest history. But in the early 18th century, Lady Mary Wortley Montague returned from extensive travels throughout the Ottoman Empire with her husband, then the ambassador to Constantinople. Istanbul! She brought with her the Ottoman practice of variolation, which, again, sorry folks, there's going to be a lot of gross talk in this section. Pus from a person with a mild form of smallpox was spread over an open wound on someone who hadn't yet had the disease. This gave the recipient smallpox, but usually only the milder version.
5: In other words, the patient might end up with facial scars from the blisters, or even lose part of a limb to secondary infection from the open wound. But it was still preferable to smallpox, you goddamned anti-vax assholes.
2: Anyway, this procedure was unquestionably a lifesaver in many cases. But in the decades that followed, other doctors began to mull over the widely known fact that milkmaids never seemed to contract smallpox. A number of them postulated that the reason was because these ladies inevitably had already contracted cowpox, a much less deadly and disfiguring disease spread by, well, Jesus, figure it out. So, these doctors reasoned, maybe exposure to cowpox was protecting these lasses. In 1796, Dr. Edward Jenner decided to find out. While a few other doctors had used cowpox infection to inoculate other patients against smallpox, Jenner had that uniquely British combination of stiff upper lip, can-do attitude, and reckless disregard for the potential harm his actions might cause. That allowed him to prove the efficacy of the procedure conclusively. How? Well, first he bribed a penniless laborer to hand over his healthy eight-year-old son. Then he inoculated the lad with pus from milkmaid Sarah Nelms. The kid shortly came down with cowpox, but recovered just fine.
5: Okay, that was definitely dangerous, experimenting on a child like that, but uh, given the state of science and the threat of smallpox, I can see it.
2: Yeah, but the important thing is what he did next, which is wait a while and then inject smallpox pus, albeit from a mild form of the disease, into that same boy.
5: Holy shit! Yeah.
2: Luckily, it worked. The kid was immune, and thus the efficacy of cowpox vaccination for smallpox was proven.
5: Great, but that kind of hubris seems like a bad omen for how future scientists might handle risks with their patients.
2: It sure do, don't it? And to be fair to Jenner, he inoculated his own son the same way, but only after the vaccine's efficacy was proved on the poor guy's kid. So there are definitely some class issues here, but let's put a pin in that for now. Anyway, over the next several decades, the obvious efficacy of the principle that Jenner proved was increasingly accepted by the scientific consensus, mostly because, Offit notes, between 1810 and 1820, Jenner's vaccine cut the smallpox death rate in half. Eventually, the political authorities came to see those who weren't adopting this new practice of childhood vaccination as endangering the public safety.
5: There's a good reason for that, and it's called
2: herd immunity. Now, we understand that many humans, especially in our experience, lady-identifying humans, don't like being included in any group that's defined by the term herd. But the idea here is not that every vaccinated person turns into a hefty ruminant. Rather, as Manukin puts it,
5: Herd immunity occurs when a high enough percentage of a population has been successfully vaccinated to create a barrier in which the immune members of a society protect the unimmunized by making it impossible for a virus to spread in the first place.
2: So as great as vaccinations are, they're not 100% effective, a trait they share with literally every treatment that has ever been invented. But the key fact here is that humans are one of the most social of mammal species. A few hermits excepted, we tend to live in groups, oftentimes the bigger the group the better, as evidenced by the ongoing urbanization of populations around the globe. For most of our history, this has made us into a real all-you-can-eat buffet for infectious diseases and communicable pestilence of all kinds. Once a virus has killed Mildred, it was easy enough to hop into her toddler grandson, then to his playmates, their families, schools, workplaces, etc. For thousands of years, during every major plague, the worst casualties were in the cities. But vaccination turns this liability into a strong defense of a population's most defenseless members, at least from an immune system standpoint. Because when enough people within a group have been immunized, it means any infection that makes its way into the population is very unlikely to be able to transfer from its host to infect others. And this is true in spite of the fact that immunizations aren't perfectly effective.
5: To be clear, though, while they're not perfectly effective, as we noted with the malaria vaccine, most of the big ones are pretty fucking good. Per CDC statistics, a single dose of measles vaccine makes 93% of people immune, while a second dose brings that up to 97%. Obviously, not all inoculations are this foolproof, as we all relearn to our chagrin whenever scientists' best guess for the annual flu shot ends up missing the mark.
2: So, herd immunity, bovine comparisons aside, is a pretty great side effect of vaccination, but it's also a fragile benefit, which only accrues so long as everyone generally agrees that vaccinations are a good idea. Unfortunately, we will have to return to this topic later to deal with modern, short-sighted, selfish, awful people and their medical enablers. The...
5: Motherfuckers.
2: As the benefits of herd immunity became more and more obvious over the course of the 19th century, vaccination went from a really good idea to a mandatory policy pretty quickly. The British Parliament passed various laws mandating smallpox inoculation and stipulating fines for those who refused to have themselves or their families vaccinated as has been the case since time immemorial even the most well-intentioned public policy can have some inadvertent negative consequences and this was certainly the case with these first attempts at mandatory vaccination in this royal throne of kings this scepter isle this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war this happy breed of men this little world this precious stone set in the silver sea
5: enough
6: jesus
2: England. In 1867, having learned from the rather toothless enforcement systems of previous similar laws, Parliament passed a mandatory act that clearly outlined the penalties that would accrue to parents who refused to vaccinate their children. As Offit notes, this law was specifically aimed at the poor, who were
5: considered less likely to vaccinate due to, quote, ignorance and prejudice.
2: And so the idea was to make non-compliance expensive enough that these parents would simply submit rather than pay the piper. Of course, as any reader of Dickens would assume, these penalties would add up. The protesting parents would be unable to pay the fines, and after an auction of the family's assets, said parents could be jailed for up to two weeks per offense. Among the innovations was the idea that these penalties could compound as a result of continued noncompliance, meaning that fines and jail time could pile on top of each other. The jailed parent unable to pay the next round of fines could be sentenced once again. This is a cycle familiar not only to Oliver Twist, but to those who work with issues related to justice for lower-income people to this day.
5: For example, while the shooting of Michael Brown was the initial reason for the 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri, another underreported source of tension was the fact that the city's budget was dependent on a reliable cash flow acquired through compounded financial penalties against low-income residents who were unable to pay their initial parking, traffic, or other civil fines. These fines, in turn, were derived from overpolicing of inconsequential
2: offenses. So, as laudatory as mandatory vaccination can be as a public policy, the specific implementation by mid-19th century Britain left a lot to be desired. And in the tension between the sensible goal and the draconian legislation, the first anti-vaccination groups popped up. What's surprising about these groups is how modern groups emulate their tactics so closely to pursue similar aims, in spite of the gulf of time, geography, and economic class that divides the two. Offit lists several core beliefs that hold to this day, but which were pioneered by the 19th century activists, including...
5: Doctors are evil.
2: He quotes 1850s agitators characterizing doctors bearing vaccinations as burglars and assailants, and compares this with anti-vaxxer Barbara Lowe Fisher's 2006 article titled Doctors Want Power to Kill Disabled Babies. Focus on public rallies. In 1885, anti-vax organizers arranged for a 100,000 protesters to congregate in the city of Leicester, where
5: an effigy of Edward Jenner was hanged, decapitated, and taken to the local police station for arraignment.
2: Score one for 19th century stagecraft. Though the 2006 version, a rally in Atlanta, Georgia, in front of the CDC's headquarters, featured protesters bearing placards with pictures of prominent immunization scientists and officials defaced with slashes through their faces and labels designating them terrorists. But, of course, given the show you're listening to, it's a safe bet that the most important similarities across centuries are the false claims and paranoia peddled by anti-vaxxers old and new. These are, as you might assume, thick on the ground. We're going to spend most of our time on the past 35 years of tragic misapprehension, but let's spare a moment for the all-too-familiar accusations that kicked off in the mid-1800s, including this gem via Offit's book.
5: Anti-vaccine activists likened government officials meeting in the late-night parliamentary sessions to a coven of witches preparing destruction. In a dark midnight hour, when evil spirits were abroad, when nearly all slept save a few doctors who were rather awake, whose dictum and nostrum carried the night, the act was passed, the deed was done. It was a deed worthy of the night, dark of the night.
2: Longtime listeners, as well as any Jewish folks in our audience, may well recognize the familiar midnight conspiracy setting as analogous to the ridiculous yet blood-soaked assertions of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion.
5: See episode 2 for a complete rundown of this horrific, anti-Semitic piece of forged, yet weirdly still-influential shite.
2: And as far as bizarre medical claims go, even the autism fantasies of the modern loons pale before the suggestions of the 19th century propagandists who apparently convinced the uneducated that, since the vaccine was based on the cowpox, it ran a significant risk of turning the inoculated into cows. Literally. Once again, Offit, that font of astonishing historical quotes, delivers this barn burner of an accusation by a concerned father and farmer from 1891.
5: It is well known that the bulls go mad every seven years, and that the cows make them mad. He reasoned that because cows were used to make vaccine, The madhouses were full of vaccinated children.
2: Apparently, he couldn't be bothered to check on the veracity of this assertion. Offit goes on to note that other parents avoided vaccines so that their children wouldn't start to, quote, low and browse in the field. There are some other great ones, including accusations that the tiny scars often caused by the various early forms of vaccination were, in point of fact, the mark of the beast spoken of in the Book of Revelation the last book in the Bible and a font of conspiracy thinking that we'll surely get around to eventually. But in any case, the early anti-vaxxers were unfortunately as or more effective in their propaganda than our modern version, leading many parents to hide their children when the vaccine inspector came around. Eventually, of course, both the treatments and their discontents made their way across the Atlantic to the shores of the young colossus that was just then gearing up to dominate the 20th century. Vaccination's history in the U.S. ran deep. As Manukin chronicles, smallpox inoculations played a key role in the war that established the United States in the first place. General George Washington, who had suffered through the disease in the 1750s, was forced into an agonizing decision in the midst of the war for independence. His troops were being waylaid by smallpox, while the British, many of whom had been exposed in their childhoods, had no need to worry about infection. In 1776, as rumors of deliberate biowarfare by Tory sympathizers abounded, he issued a mandatory vaccination order for all new recruits. This was the first, but certainly not the last, fraught public policy decision related to vaccination that American leaders would encounter. But as ham-fisted and unfairly enforced as early vaccination laws may have been, the laws passed for diseases that were then untreatable were, if anything, still more draconian and regressive. In another book, Dr. Offit sets the scene, quoting from a contemporary newspaper story detailing a 1916 raid by authorities that was aimed at containing a truly alarming outbreak of polio in Brooklyn that within a few weeks had jumped from two kids to infect 150. Remember, this is from a period before there was any kind of polio vaccine.
5: Three policemen forced their way into her home, broke down the door to the bedroom, and drew their revolvers in assisting the ambulance surgeon to obtain possession of her two-year-old nephew, a paralysis suspect. The policemen entered the house, Mrs. Dasnort says, by cutting the screen covering a window on the first floor, breaking their way into the room where Mrs. Dasnort stood with the baby in her arms, their revolvers drawn, she charges. Two policemen held her while the third pulled the child from her arms and passed him back through the window to the surgeon.
2: The reason scenes like this happened, of course, was that the authorities didn't trust those most at risk from the disease, that is, the often immigrant families who lived in concentrated tenement apartments in New York, to understand the implications when a child began showing symptoms of polio, and to voluntarily bring those children in for treatment, or, at the very least, quarantine. The families who suffered under these policies, of course, often struck back, as in this anonymous letter written in blood to a nurse with the public school system.
5: If you report any more of our babies to the Board of Health, we will kill you and nobody will know what happened to you. Keep off our street and don't report our homes and we will do you no harm. At the bottom of the letter, beneath a crude drawing of a skull and crossbones, was the statement, we will kill you like a dog.
2: Yikes. This problem seemed truly intractable and led to distrust and accusations on both sides. But the fundamental legal principle that was created during this period was that the guarantees of personal liberty and conscience enshrined in U.S. law were not absolute when it came to vaccination. A judgment by the Supreme Court in 1905 established that there was no constitutional guarantee to refuse vaccination based on the fact that vaccines were an obvious necessity in protecting the health of society. An even more dramatic example from around this period was the case of one Mary Mallon, a domestic worker born in Ireland in 1869 and who worked as a cook for a number of prominent families along the eastern seaboard. When a medical researcher, contracted by one of the affected families, dug into the case histories of their illnesses, he determined that the only connection was that Ms. Mallon had worked in each of the impacted homes. Because she was completely unwilling to cooperate with a medical investigation,
5: to the point that she threatened her interlocutor with a
2: carving fork. She was physically apprehended and quarantined. Tests proved that her body was teeming with typhoid bacilli, a result Ms. Mallon found absurd as she'd never had typhoid in her life. She was the first healthy carrier of the disease ever identified. She was held by the authorities against her will for three years, from 1907 to 1910. Then, after promising not to work as a cook anymore, she was released.
5: At which time the press gave her the name we all recognize today, Typhoid Mary.
2: Five years later, a maternity ward in New York City experienced an outbreak among doctors and other staff, leaving two dead and 25 infected. Once again, a cook was identified. This time it was one Mrs. Brown, though quickly the officials discovered that this was Malin using a pseudonym. At this point, she was judged a danger to the public, and health officials isolated her on an island, where she remained until her death in 1938. This is, of course, a well-known story that most of us learn as an object lesson in the fact that not everyone who carries a disease necessarily experiences symptoms. But as Offit explains, the story of typhoid Mary had a big impact on anti-vaccine activists who were even then campaigning against compulsory inoculation and quarantines of the kind that Ms. Mallon experienced.
5: Consider it, for a moment, from the early 20th century anti-vaxxers' perspective. This perfectly healthy woman was arrested and detained for decades, simply for doing an honest day's work. Sure, the authorities could argue that some invisible disease was living on but not affecting her, but it is no wonder that many who weren't up to speed on the then-current science might have seen the whole experience as a kind of terrifying overreach by the authorities.
2: It was just these sorts of concerns that fueled the rise of the first wave of prominent American anti-vaxxers as a force in culture. Both Manukin and Offit specifically call out Laura Little, an early 20th century activist whose self-assigned remit included railing not only at vaccines, but also
5: mechanization, Western medicine, establishment doctors, processed foods, and white sugar, which contributed to most modern ills.
2: You'll note that every one of those items are still on the hit lists of cultural and health critics to this day, for better or worse reasons depending on the source. But she saved special hatred and ridicule for vaccines and the doctors and pharmaceutical companies whom she accused of conspiring against the public for profit, as she said.
5: The salaries of the public health officials in this country reach the sum of $14 million annually. One important function of the health boards is vaccination. Without smallpox scares, their trade would languish. Thousands of doctors in private practice are also beneficiaries in scare times. And lastly, the vaccine formers represent a capital of $20 million invested in their foul businesses.
2: Manukin Riley notes that if you account for inflation in the salary and capital figures, and if you replaced smallpox with measles, you could pretty much cut and paste this same assertion into the pamphlets of modern anti-vaxxers. Weird that a hundred years of evidence and improved public health haven't changed this attitude, isn't it? Johnny Gruel, much like Laura Little, became an early anti-vaccine advocate due to the tragic death of a child that he wrongly blamed on vaccination. In Little's case, her son actually died of measles and diphtheria, and Gruel's daughter succumbed to a heart defect. A cartoonist and illustrator by trade, Gruel created a red-haired doll in her memory, making her arms and legs floppy as a reference to the symptoms supposedly exhibited by children victimized by vaccines.
5: Turns out, the fact that Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls are super creepy, limp-limbed nightmares is actually a design feature, not a bug.
2: As much noise as these protesters were willing to make about smallpox and other vaccines, they didn't have much of an impact. Meanwhile, diligent, conscientious doctors were continuing their research into the prevention of many, many other diseases that continued to kill and maim children. In the early decades of the century, the biggest focus was on a particularly awful and widely feared bug. Polio. A real asshole of a disease, polio is a virus that, per our friends at the CDC, is highly contagious, only affects humans, and spreads through contact with feces or saliva. Once it's infected you, though, things can go a lot of different ways. About 7 in 10 people will experience no symptoms whatsoever. 1 in 4 will get a fever. But it's what it does to the remaining folks that makes it such a motherfucker. Specifically, it gets in their brains and spinal cord and causes infections like meningitis or, in the worst cases, paralysis.
5: The most famous victim of this latter trait of polio is unquestionably the late great president Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who contracted the disease as an adult.
2: Weirdly, considering he was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, FDR got off relatively easily. The majority of sufferers are infected as children. Many of these die due to suffocation, as their paralyzed muscles and organs won't let them breathe properly. Kids who did survive were often confined to artificial respiration systems, like the iron lung, for the rest of their lives.
7: I cannot move.
8: Period. Paul Alexander is a polio survivor who spends nearly all day, every day, inside his iron lung at home in Dallas, Texas. The disease paralyzed fall from the neck down, so the machine helps him breathe by using negative pressure to force his body to take in air. He was only six years old when he caught polio in 1952, one of the worst
2: outbreak years in U.S. history. Polio's a real piece of shit, even for a disease. Great grandfather Jesuit walked with a limp for more than six decades due to a relatively benign case he suffered as a child. No wonder, then, that the government of the U.S. was desperate both to contain any outbreaks as quickly as possible, using, as we saw earlier, some highly questionable and often Gestapo-esque tactics.
5: That scene predated the founding of the Gestapo by a couple of decades, but I'll allow it.
2: Fortunately, in its battle with polio, humanity had a secret weapon, Jonas Salk. A remarkably thoughtful, meticulous, and ambitious scientist, Salk set himself the task of curing polio and established what amounted to a scientific factory, employing more than 50 people, covering three floors of Pittsburgh's municipal hospital, as narrated by Offit in his book about the Cutter Incident.
5: If you think that title sounds ominous, give yourself a cookie, Ms. Marple.
2: Salk's obsessive pursuit of a cure was sensible in light of the fact that, between 1943 and 1952, the incidence of polio in the U.S. had increased by nearly 600%.
5: A national poll conducted at the time found that polio was second only to the atomic bomb as the thing that Americans feared the most.
2: So Salk was met by jubilation when, in early 1953, reports began circulating that he had successfully tested a vaccine on live patients. What went unmentioned at the time was that these tests were conducted on mentally challenged kids who couldn't possibly have consented to the process. But Offit assures us in this case that it was standard, if horrifying, operating procedure for testing experimental medicines at this time, and was justified by the fact that facilities for these kids were so notorious as incubators of infectious disease. So, unquestionably horrifying, but horrifying within recognized contemporary parameters, or whatever. Salk announced his successful results in late March on a national radio show, and almost immediately afterward, people began demanding access to this new miracle cure for the dreaded disease. Salk had been at pains to establish his results as preliminary, but critics saw him as hungry for the glory that would attend the man who vanquished this childhood plague. The upshot was that public demand for Salk's vaccine applied pressure both to the scientists involved and to the government of the United States to get the vaccine into the hands of terrorized patients as soon as possible. Offit describes the accelerated field trials and manufacturing hurdles that resulted from this, again, please excuse me, feverish, effort to refine the experimental formulation Salk had developed into an easily manufactured form, and to begin producing it in the massive quantities needed to inoculate all of the nation's children. By 1955, the results of the field trials of the refined formulation were in, and they were positive.
9: Dr. Jonas Salk, discoverer of the first successful vaccine against infantile paralysis, gives the first official reports to a waiting world at the University of Michigan. Dr. Salk's own child was one of the two million children involved in tests of his vaccine. Tests which have ended for all time the threat of one of the world's most vicious diseases.
2: The The U.S. went wild with relief, all except Salk and the other scientists who best understood the data. They knew this public pressure was rushing out a vaccine that could still be significantly improved with more time and research, and that the current version would not produce a truly long-lasting immunity. Some of these scientists never forgave Salk for letting the public hoopla carry the day in spite of his reservations. Over the coming weeks, a number of U.S. manufacturers lined up to begin producing what came to be known as the Salk vaccine. One of these was Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California.
5: You might recognize that name from the company's insect repellent and also ran to S.C. Johnson's company's more popular off in the bug avoidance branding wars.
2: Through a series of disastrous failures of planning and implementation, Cutter ended up distributing several hundred thousand doses of polio vaccine that contained live virus.
5: That seems less than ideal.
2: Yes. As one might have predicted from the stats on polio infection we went over a little earlier, about 70,000 kids came down with symptoms, and, far more tragically, 200 were permanently paralyzed, and 10 didn't make it. Offit makes it clear that Cutter was not some sort of fly-by-night band of hucksters seeking to make a buck off of a fearful public, danger be damned. The instructions for manufacturing the Salk vaccine were complicated, and while they could have done more to ensure its safety, the pressure to get a vaccine out to the public was huge. In one particularly tragic moment of irony in this story,
5: As a reward to its staff members for their hard work, in mid-April 1955, Cutter executives cleared the cafeteria, brought in the nurses, and gave the vaccine to the children of 450 employees.
2: Which serves as pretty strong proof they believed they were putting out a reliable product. Cutter's vaccine was immediately recalled, and the government tried to quell public fears, but in spite of that recall, the damage was done, and the country could only watch in horror as children were paralyzed or killed by what had been advertised as their salvation. This event had a number of consequences. The first, of course, was to forever taint the introduction of this life-saving vaccine with a clearly avoidable tragedy. Fortunately, the government and industry responded by requiring much stricter manufacturing and testing before subsequent batches of the polio vaccine could be distributed to the public. And over the ensuing five years, more than 400 million doses of vaccine were administered in the U.S. without a single case of paralysis. But even this success could not fully erase the memory of the cascade of errors and the rush to production that left so much damage in its wake. Perhaps even more impactful in the long run, though, was the result of the inevitable court proceedings that followed what came to be known as the Cutter Incident. The jury's groundbreaking and kind of hard to suss out decision established that the company had in fact followed the government's initial inadequate production guidelines, and so they were not legally negligent. However, the company was still financially liable for the effects of its vaccine on patients. This established a new concept of liability without negligence that would come back to haunt the world of vaccines in later decades. While the cutter vaccine was in fact defective, the legal precedent meant that companies could successfully be sued for products that turned out to be safe. Furthermore, there were no limits established on the damages that juries could award in these cases. Which
5: eventually led to absurdities like the class action lawsuit against Dow Corning for injuries from silicone breast implants, which both contemporary and later studies indicated could not possibly have caused the conditions alleged by the plaintiff's lawyer. Dow settled eventually for $4.25 There has yet to be a single scientific indication that these implants were in any way unsafe.
2: And so, with dramatic improvements in manufacturing and testing requirements, along with a loss of faith in vaccines, the government, and pharmaceutical companies, and an important and questionable new legal standard, the Cutter incident's impact, like a virus, lay dormant for a couple of decades, until it was reactivated by a 1982 TV news report.
0: Ginny, and she gave me the skin, neck I skipped kidneys, inoculation, and big headed babies. I don't know why I.
2: The piece was called Vaccine Roulette and was created by an ambitious young reporter named Leah Thompson. Now we know what you're thinking, and no, it wasn't this Leah
9: Thompson. Be ...a
3: great manager. I'm gonna suggest it to the girls.
9: I've given up trying to assimilate. Mm-hmm. I've gotta get back to my own kind. Although... I have developed a greater appreciation for the female version of the human anatomy.
3: Oh! would you really are the worst.
9: Howard the Duck?
5: Why in God's name wouldn't you go with Back to the Future? Or Caroline in the Goddamn City, even?
2: Everybody's a critic. Anyway, journalist Leah, in spite of what we're about to say about her one-sided and alarmist work on vaccines, is actually an award-winning and well-respected reporter whose subsequent pieces on dangerous consumer products have unquestionably had a positive impact. But Vaccine Roulette, unfortunately, was the most consequential of all. As Offit notes,
5: If the government hadn't stepped in several years later, Thompson's show could have eliminated vaccines from the American marketplace.
2: No doubt that's a bold claim, but take a listen to the original footage, which of course is available on YouTube. You don't think the anti-vaxxers would have forgotten to upload this kind of propaganda, would you? You'll see it's quite affecting, rife with heart stories of parents coping with children who are suffering from profound conditions.
10: We had a child up to four months of age that was developing beautifully well. The doctor explained that he was giving Scott his first DPT shot. Between 12 and 14 hours, he gave an outburst of a very hard cry. What we learned later were infantile spasms. Uh, It was determined up at the Mayo Clinic uh, after a group of doctors conferred and indicated that it was indeed the DPT shots that injured Scott. I went home and cried. Jim cried, we couldn't believe that we could possibly have such a black future.
6: I had to start in the business uh, for myself. I had to be near the home all the time in regards to helping lift him, care for him, and take care of his many needs. It's quite a big job. We have not had a vacation for 21 years.
2: Moreover, viewers are presented with diametrically opposing views from seemingly qualified experts.
11: It's probably the poorest and the most dangerous vaccine that we now have.
12: The benefits of the vaccine, in my view, far
2: outweigh the risks. I believe that the risk of damage from the vaccine is now greater than the risk of damage from the disease. Despite its
11: limitations, the for vaccine is uh, something that should be
2: given to children. So what's the thesis of the piece? We'll let the Leah Thompson, who presumably doesn't fuck anthropomorphized waterfowl, explain.
10: DPT, the initial stand for diphtheria pertussis tetanus, three diseases against which every child is vaccinated. For more than a year, we have been investigating the P, the pertussis port of the vaccine. What we have found are serious questions about the safety and effectiveness of the shot. The overriding policy of the medical establishment has been to aggressively promote the use of the vaccine, but it has been anything but aggressive in dealing with the consequences. While there has been active study and debate in other countries on this subject, there has been a general void of information in the United States. Our objective in the next hour is to provide enough information so that there can be an informed discussion about this important subject. It affects every single family in America.
2: By the way, off it goes to town on the experts that Thompson chose for her piece. For example, there's Robert Mendelson, whom Thompson describes thus.
10: Dr. Robert Mendelson of Chicago, author, lecturer, and former head of pediatrics departments at the University of Illinois Medical School and the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago.
11: The statistics of this country are wrong and that the danger is far greater than any doctors here have ever been willing to admit.
2: Hey, that's our old friend the lightning round effect, which we so overused in the JFK episode. He tells us when someone who sounds authoritative, like Kevin Costner and JFK, is actually full of shit. Good to see you, boy. What's that you say? Timmy fell down the well? No? Oh, sorry. Mendelssohn was never the head of the pediatric department at the University of Illinois Medical School or the Michael Reese Hospital? Do go on.
5: It wasn't that Mendelssohn thought that children shouldn't get Pertussis vaccine. He believed they shouldn't get any vaccines. And it wasn't only vaccines that he thought were useless. He also opposed water fluoridation, coronary bypass surgery, licensing of nutritionists, and mammography screening for breast cancer.
9: Mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness monster, and the theory of Atlantis.
2: So the show had problems. But as you might expect, concerned and otherwise uninformed parents who heard this report were so frightened of the DPT vaccine's potential to permanently damage their children that they didn't know whether to shit or go blind. As the sensational response to the report spread, so did the story. National media outlets, as Manukin reports, broadcast its conclusions with little or no independent verification of its claims. In fact, it was left to the Journal of the American Medical Association to do the first and seemingly only follow-up digging into Thompson's work. They found sources who claimed their quotes were taken out of context, over-reliance on inaccurate statistics, as well as a variety of unfounded claims. Within weeks, There was a U.S. Senate hearing where the American Academy of Pediatrics blasted the report as, among other things, unbalanced, biased, inaccurate, and superficial. But unbeknownst to everyone at the time, one of the biggest problems was that everyone, both pro and anti-vax, who appeared at that hearing were under the mistaken belief that the DPT shot could, in fact, cause massive permanent harm of this kind, including epilepsy and mental retardation, to some children who received it. The pediatrician simply took issue with Thompson's suggestion about how common these reactions were.
5: And, to be clear, even based on the evidence available at the time, Thompson's figures were irresponsibly overblown.
2: But while a number of court rulings and other developments over the years consistently indicated that the link between the DPT shot and these symptoms hadn't been properly established, it wasn't until 2006 that a neurologist named Samuel Berkovic finally discovered that, in fact, the children whose tragic conditions were featured in Vaccine Roulette suffered from a rare type of epilepsy caused by a genetic disorder. It was called Davitt's Syndrome. Of course, when Berkovic's conclusive paper was published, not a single news report covered the discovery. But that conclusion was reached decades after the biggest impacts of the Vaccine Roulette report had already transpired. And the most significant development was that in reaction to the misguided public outcry against their products and the wave of lawsuits that inevitably resulted, many pharmaceutical companies announced that they were planning to exit the business altogether, per Offit.
5: The United States were on the verge of returning to the pre-vaccine era.
2: In one of its rare bouts of bipartisan common sense, Congress passed a 1986 bill called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. This act created the vaccine court system, through which anyone who proved damages caused by vaccines could receive compensation directly from the government, based on pre-established dollar ranges. At the same time, it made it impossible to directly sue pharmaceutical companies for these damages. This had the effect of making it easier for parents to receive compensation for their children, protecting vaccine manufacturers from the potential for huge jury awards from civil suits, and ensuring continued research and development into new vaccines.
5: The program was a huge success. In the first 10 years after the act was passed, the number of lawsuits filed per year had dropped from 255 to 6. You won't be surprised to hear that anti-vaxxers disagree with their assessment of the program's value, however. Three decades ago, Congress gave the pharmaceutical and medical trade industries
1: a liability shield to block civil lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers and negligent doctors whenever government-mandated vaccines injure and kill children. Over the past three decades, government agencies and their pharmaceutical and medical trade industry partners have turned the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act into a drug company stockholders dream and appearance worst nightmare.
2: Many of you may be surprised that, at this point in all of this discussion of the anti-vax movement, we have yet to mention autism, which for our current moment seems like the only topic that's worth talking about. But now it's time. And in talking about our current wave of hysteria, we have to turn our attention from the previously maligned DPT vaccine to the MMR, or measles, mumps, and rubella shot. Before we return to the depressing work of cataloging this nonsense, though, we want to take a quick moment to talk about the idea of cognitive biases and logical fallacies. These evolutionary holdovers are naturally occurring habits of mind that lead people to precisely the wrong conclusions about all kinds of stuff. We'll hand off the explaining of one of the most important of these errors to Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine and author of a bunch of smarty-pants skeptic books we really dig. Here in a TED talk, he explains and contextualizes the difference between what are known as type 1 and type 2
4: errors. Process, we make two types of errors a type 1 error or a false positive uh, is believing a pattern is real when it's not. Our second type of error is a false negative, a type 2 error is not believing a pattern is real when it is. So let's uh, do a thought experiment. You are a hominid three million years ago walking on the plains of Africa. Your name is Lucy. Okay. And, uh, and you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Your next decision could be the most important one of your life. Well, if you think that the rustle in the grass is, is a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, you've made an error in cognition. you made a type one error, false positive. But no harm, you just move away, you're more cautious, you're more vigilant. On the other hand, if you believe that the rustle in the grass is just the wind and it turns out it's a dangerous predator, you're lunch. You've just won a Darwin Award. You've been taken out of the gene pool. Now, the problem here is that patternicities will occur whenever the cost of making a type 1 error is less than the cost of making a type 2 error. This is the only equation in the talk, by the way. We have a pattern detection problem that is assessing the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 error is highly problematic, especially in split-second life-and-death situations. So the default position is just believe all patterns are real. All rustles in the grass are dangerous predators and not just the wind. And so I think that we evolved. There was a natural selection for the propensity for our belief engines, our pattern-seeking brain processes to always find meaningful patterns and infuse them with these sort of predatory or intentional agencies that I'll come back to. So for example, what do you see here? Okay, cool evolutionary story, bro, but how does it
5: apply here?
2: Well, if you think about it, the whole idea that vaccines cause autism, or in an earlier period, mental handicaps and epilepsy, or in a still earlier period, were cowism, or whatever, all of these are type 1 errors. They're seeing two separate things and assuming there's a causal connection between them, because they're both kind of mysterious. But that's hardly the only kind of error anti-vaxxers commit. There's also the so-called sharpshooter fallacy. The idea there is the sharpshooter in question fires a bunch of bullets at a piece of paper and then just draws the target wherever most of the holes ended up being grouped. The fallacy analogizes this to gathering a bunch of data, then forming a hypothesis based on it, rather than the more scientifically valid approach, which is developing a hypothesis and then testing it against the data. This type of error was embodied by a supposedly scientific paper put together by non-specialist anti-vax advocates under the group name SafeMinds. It was called Autism, a novel form of mercury poisoning. As befits its total lack of scientific rigor, it was published in a journal called Medical Hypotheses in December of 2000. We'll hand off to Manukin here.
5: The New England Journal of Medicine this was not. The publication proudly issued peer review, a process it said disapprovingly can oblige authors to distort their true views to satisfy referees. And since it had no desire to predict whether ideas and facts are true, it was eager to print even probably untrue papers, as long as they spurred discussion.
2: In this paper, the highly motivated parent amateurs who wrote it essentially collected all the stories in which vaccines were administered at some point in time near a child experiencing not only autism symptoms, but any of a huge number of completely normal childhood behaviors.
5: Including temper tantrums, unprovoked crying, grimacing, sleep difficulties, rashes, itching, diarrhea, and vomiting.
2: The paper asserted that all of these were ipso facto evidence of autism in that child, and therefore evidence that vaccines caused said autism. Jesus, that's dumb. You think that's dumb? They also had the gall to suggest that the lack of supporting data was the Provax doctor and scientist's faults.
5: If tradition-bound doctors and researchers had given proper credence to personal anecdotes and untested observations, They would already have identified the subset of children that was uniquely susceptible to this novel form of poisoning,
2: i.e., supposed vaccine related mercury poisoning, which we'll address momentarily. We'll also discuss social media and the availability cascade scenario a little later, but we do want to take another moment to touch on perhaps the most frustrating of all logical fallacies, which crops up endlessly in anti vax circles, and the one with which your host is unfortunately all too familiar. As stated earlier, The Jesuit compound is in the beautiful Bay Area of California. Truly an incredible place, if you can keep from getting priced out of it. And for a parent, it offers a cornucopia of experiences and diversity for your children's growing mind to engage with. On the other hand, it's also one of the important natural infestations of smug, overeducated parental ignorance in the United States. And... Right-leaning listeners, please note, we completely cop to the fact that even if anti vaxxedness is now spreading through a variety of communities, including the extremely conservative and religious, the patient zero were liberal Berkeley professor hippie back-to-nature types who think of themselves as too clever by half to be swayed from their ignorance no matter what these quote-unquote expert scientists say. Case in point. It came to pass that awkward Jesuit in her elementary years was attending a school at which a parental hubbub was raised when it came time to renew the lease for a cell tower that was on top of the school. The opposition to this was swift and irresistible, and led by a friendly, personable, highly educated mom of my acquaintance. Shocked that they had previously been unaware of the existence of this looming threat to their children's health, the PTA demanded it be deactivated immediately. Now... It might not surprise you to know that your host wasn't quite ready to jump onto this poorly reasoned, evidence-free parental panic bandwagon. So I looked into the scientific data related to the impact that such towers could have on kids, and discovered that there isn't any data. At all. There are vague concerns, but no convincing arguments or evidence for how said damage would even occur. And as seems obvious, given how cell phones work, any danger these kids might experience from a tower 50-something feet above them would be vastly outweighed by the waves emitted by the similar transmissions from their parents' cell phones, pumped out as they are from inches away as they walk side-by-side, tiny heads bobbing at adult pocket height. Heady with research, I read the letter the PTA was proposing to submit to the school board, and immediately saw it was based entirely around the absurd concept of proving a negative. Briefly, the way that logic works is the person proposing an idea is responsible for proving it through sound evidence and reasoned argument. To turn this around, to state that it's the responsibility of a person who doesn't believe in a proposed idea, to then prove that idea isn't true is called proving the negative. It's pretty easy to understand why logic eschews any requirement to prove the negative. We'll use a classic example that we've paraphrased from Carl Sagan.
5: Bob tells Fred that he has a pet dragon in his garage. Fred's excited and asks to see it. Bob says, oh, it's invisible. Fred says, okay, but what if we scatter some sand on the floor so I can see it leave footprints? Bob says, "Ah, oh, sorry, won't work. It hovers just above the ground. Well, what about thermal imaging? Doesn't show up on infrared, I'm afraid. And so it goes, with Bob offering a reason why each of Fred's requests for proof won't work in this case. Fred eventually tells Bob he just doesn't believe Bob has a dragon at all. Bob, incensed notes that Fred has failed to prove the dragon doesn't exist, so until he can, Bob is justifying in saying it does.
2: So, Bob is a logic-reversing asshole. With that in mind, please indulge as I quote the response I wrote to this group's affront to sense, science, and civilization itself.
5: Before you ask, we're well aware of how self-indulgent it is to quote a letter you wrote to illustrate an arcane philosophical point. What can we say? Jesuit's got a Jesuit.
2: To whom it may concern, given that there is no actual evidence that cell phone towers cause damage of any kind to any type of living cell, and that is in spite of numerous experiments and significant attention paid to the matter, this smacks to me as the kind of anti-science scaremongering that is currently contributing to outbreaks of measles and other once near eradicated diseases in the United States. I think the best approach to this letter would be to first require that those who support it present a shred of credible evidence that there's anything to worry about. And to quote directly from the letter, sentences like, there is no guarantee that cellular emissions are not a health risk, especially to children, fail even a basic sniff test for nonsense.
5: For those who are keeping score, that's a prove a negative money shot.
2: Quoting again, There's also no guarantee that acorns, raindrops, or a mother's love are not a health risk. There's no guarantee that anything is not a health risk. Foregoing any action until there is an absolute, beyond-doubt guarantee of its safety would ensure that all human progress would grind to a halt. And that's not even counting the grammatical offenses in that letter. To wit, how does said non-guarantee especially apply to children? This is frankly embarrassing. I hope that cooler heads will prevail and that this senseless, baseless, hand-wringing missive is voted down.
5: Yes, he actually wrote this, somehow thinking it would have a positive impact on the discussion. And yes, Awkward Jesuit's mother gently talked him out of sending it to the parents of the child's school friends, because obviously.
2: I just really hate smug ignorance. Give me a sec.
13: <laughs>
2: <sighs> okay, let's move on. So, Manukin seems to feel about the same way that I do about the proven negative assholery, as he beautifully calls out in his disemboweling of the purportedly even-handed, but in fact deeply anti-vax book, Evidence of Harm, by journalist David Kirby. Suffice it to say, the book accepts questionable anti-vaxxer-friendly research, suggests the opposition to this research by the medical establishment is due to arrogance rather than a sober weighing of the evidence.
5: In this, despite the fact that the guys it holds up as a heroic non-mainstream anti vax scientific truth-tellers are part of an organization that not only once claimed that illegal immigration leads to leprosy, but that had also been part of a tobacco industry campaign of junk science attacking indoor smoking bans as recently as 2009.
2: Indeed, but the most damning part of this whole exercise lies in the book's title, which refers to a 1999 statement put out by the CDC that was intended to soothe public concerns. The quote was,
5: There are no data or evidence of any harm.
2: Kirby makes this sound like an equivocation on the part of the medical establishment and in spite of the tremendous evidence that had already accumulated by the time of the book's publication that vaccines, even those containing mercury in the form of thimerosal, did not have a causal relationship with autism, he claimed that no one could truly be sure that there was not a link. Quoting Kirby directly,
5: the CDC insisted that it had looked into the matter thoroughly and found no evidence of any harm, but no evidence of harm is not the same as proof of safety. No evidence of harm is not a definitive answer. And this is a story that cries out for answers.
2: Hopefully you hear in this an echo of the PTA parents' ridiculous demand for absolute assurance that cell towers don't harm children, the thing that drove me so insane several years ago. Kirby is, in Manukin's words, making a mockery of science. Why? Because science doesn't deal in absolutes. All conclusions are tentative and may be revised upon better data. This doesn't mean we're washing meaninglessness. It just means we should never be so arrogant as to assume that we have reached complete knowledge of anything. Or, to put it another way, there's no way to prove thimerosal isn't associated with autism, any more than there's a way to prove that the god Zeus isn't associated with lightning strikes. But there's exactly the same amount of evidence in favor of both propositions.
0: I don't know why I can sleep at night. I've got this in my Because creation
2: it's time to tackle autism and vaccines, the current ground zero of this ridiculous and harmful non-debate debate. debate. So what exactly does autism mean? As much as I'm sure you'd love to hear my completely uninformed and decidedly unqualified thoughts, I'm just going to quote WebMD.
5: Autism is a complex neurobehavioral condition that includes impairments in social interaction and developmental language and communication skills combined with rigid repetitive behaviors. Because of the range of symptoms, this condition is now called Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD. It covers a large spectrum of symptoms, skills, and levels of impairment.
2: But of course, if you know anyone who has a mild version of this disorder, you'll know that a person who has a minor Asperger's diagnosis is a world away from the poor soul suffering with a profound version of autism. Let's establish a couple of basic facts that probably even anti-vaxxers would agree with. Number one, Several related conditions, like Asperger's syndrome, have been folded into the originally more restrictive definition of autism. And second, the number of cases of autism diagnosed per year in the US has absolutely fucking skyrocketed.
11: Autism now affects more American children than childhood cancer, diabetes, and AIDS combined. In the last decade, the numbers of children diagnosed on the autism spectrum have risen rapidly. The Centers for Disease Control now puts the rate at 1 in 110. Tonight we On look autism at autism in these this country.
8: The Centers are. for Disease Control is releasing the study later this morning and it's expected to show that autism is far more common than previously believed. Our senior health and medical editor Dr. Richard Besser joins us now with this. So what's the headline here, Rich?
11: You know, Robin, I fully expect this is going to show similar results to what we reported a few weeks ago. One in a hundred children have some form of autism. That's a 50% increase over previous estimates,
2: and the news for boys is not as good. Mm-hmm. Four times as many boys are diagnosed with this than our girls.
8: Remind us why that's the case with boys?
2: It's it's not clear. Yeah.
11: You know, When you talk to scientists who study yeah. this, this area... The numbers
8: are startling. For any parent of a child, when they hear these uh, this, these reports, it's getting, uh, really, just the
5: numbers are increasing so quickly. Tell us what the new data is.
1: Right, so these are new numbers coming from the. CDC, so it's a government study, and they found that in data collected in 2008, one in 88 U.S. children is now identified as having autism or related disorder.
9: This is up 23% from a diagnosed with autism or
11: related disorders uh, has increased dramatically. It rose more than 20% from 2006 to 2008. The sharpest increases among Hispanic and black children. Experts believe that broader screening and better diagnosis.
2: But even with that being admitted, consider how that first point, about the definition of autism expanding, impacts the other point about increased diagnosis. Mnuchin.
5: The ongoing elasticity of autism has meant there are huge variations in who would have been designated as autistic at any given time.
2: Not, of course, that this entirely explains the rise in autism spectrum cases, which have grown from one in a thousand in the late 80s to a little over one in a hundred today. But there are many other explanations, including a rise in maternal or paternal age, both of which are associated with increased diagnoses of autism, to the increase in number of people who live near a family with a child who's already been diagnosed. Apparently, knowing somebody whose kid is diagnosed encourages parents who already suspect their child might be on the spectrum to go ahead and have them checked out when they otherwise might not have gone through with said diagnosis. None of these factors alone explains the increase, but taken together, they go a long way toward explaining what otherwise might appear to be an inexplicable and terrifying epidemic. Regardless, what we know for a near certainty is that the thing that anti-vax parents blame for their kids' conditions
5: typically the MMR vaccine
2: is incredibly, Zeus throwing lightning bolts unlikely to be a contributing factor, and yet the accusations persist. But regardless of how much research we've done, why would you listen to us over the anti-vaxers? we're not qualified. What we need is a properly credentialed friend of the show. Someone who has both the authoritative knowledge and the desperate lack of other things to do with their time that is the hallmark of the best paranoid strain guests. And so, for only the second time ever, we reacquaint you with the show's official medical correspondent and our friend, Dr. Cap'n Rob.
6: As Dr. Captain Rob, the official medical correspondent, I, uh, I, I do hold down a day job where I see patients with uh, diseases of the nose and sinuses. I actually have achieved an MD, completed my residency, two separate fellowships, but there's nothing that compares to my online job as the official uh, correspondent for medically related issues for the paranoid strain.
2: At this point, we should acknowledge that Rob is not, in fact, a pediatrician and so doesn't come into direct contact with anti-vax views in his day-to-day practice. Or, as the man himself notes,
6: Certainly, I see it more in the pop culture. I see it in talking to other colleagues. The vast majority of patients I see are adults. The only vaccination I deal with really is in people who have certain types of primary immunodeficiency who get a pneumonia vaccination. And that's really the only vaccination that I I, I deal with medically. Uh, Honestly, I've had virtually no resistance to it. Certainly, I've never had someone, an adult, receiving a vaccination themselves who was against receiving it just for the the anti-vax argument. You know, I obviously see lots of other, you know, alternative or complementary or unusual health practices, but in vaccinations, it's interesting how adults, when they make the decision for themselves, I've never had anyone have an issue with it.
5: This may lead some of you to suggest that we should have tracked down a pediatrician and had an interview with that person. We challenge this on two points. First, regardless of his specialty, Rob is the official paranoid strain medical correspondent. Second, he's funny and returns our calls so chill
6: medicine is a really incremental field there are only a couple things that occur you know over the course of a century that are really big steps forward it's actually pretty rare to have a groundbreaking research and typically what happens when people do come across something that runs counter to all the accepted dogma it gets published in a way where it comes out with a with a, a statement from the editor that this demonstrates a trend or it's an abnormality and it, it requires further study And then often, a respected journal wouldn't publish something so controversial and so potentially dangerous unless they already invite countervailing views and countervailing studies. It would be heavily balanced with cautions. I've had, I think, maybe one patient who wanted to bring up the details about what else is in the vaccine. This is certainly not in the last year or two, enough where I could discuss it with them. And it was easily pointed out that the risks to their health were far higher not being vaccinated. Adults are not suddenly worrying about getting autism. And so I think with children, you know, there's that whole developmental, that whole black box. And when you deal with autism, although we know a lot more about it now than we did even five years ago, and it's certainly not my field of specialty, the problem with it is that you can't point to it and say, well, your child has autism because of X. We can't tell them why, And so anytime you can't tell someone the reason why they have it, you can fill in the blank with all kinds of scary thoughts. They've gone from using the term autism to autism spectrum and it's a neurodevelopmental issue. There's such a wide range of difficulties in integrating some of the neurologic and social behaviors, emotional behaviors, physical manifestations, everything from repetitive behaviors, difficulties interacting with others, difficulty in integrating the environment outside the self. Truly it's a diagnosis that is still in evolution. In the medical community, we don't think that there's something occurring that's causing an increased incidence, it's just that it's being recognized better. I think there are several good examples, one of which would be the flu. People say they're out of work for two, three days because they have the flu, Probably only a very small percentage of those people have had a nasopharyngeal swab that demonstrated they have actual influenza. They probably have some severe respiratory infection that's not truly influenza. Whereas influenza, you know, you'd compare to autism where everything else from a sinusitis or a viral respiratory infection to, you know, walking pneumonia could be considered what some people would colloquially call a flu. And you can go down the line with major depressive disorder being a very specific, very serious medical illness and all the things that mimic that, like dysthymia or an adjustment disorder. There's a wide range of things that can mimic depression but don't have the same importance as a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And There probably are similar biochemical mechanisms, but the way the circuits are malfunctioning and the way the person adapts to it, But, you know, whereas whereas someone with Asperger's on the spectrum can be extremely high functioning and in many ways higher functioning than other neurotypicals, you have obviously the very, very severe autism that's very low cognitive state and, you know, intellectually impaired. It's just an incredibly wide range. Uh, But we're just better at picking up the low end of the spectrum that previously was just passed off as being a little bit odd. Why do vaccination opponents never pause to reflect why doctors will always proceed to to vaccinate their own children? There is such overwhelming evidence that I don't know that there are any actual physicians in the anti-vax movement with any kind of reputable nature. In fact, I I would imagine they would have a very hard time practicing medicine. One other feature of the anti-vax movement that's never mentioned is that vaccinations are usually vaccines are heavily supported by by government because vaccines are, have a, a, a ridiculously small profit margin. Drug companies uh, hate making vaccines. You know, you're talking about drugs that are used on a one-time dose and gone, and you never need to do them again your whole life, versus high blood pressure meds that you're taking once or twice a day forever. Viagra, or I mean, yeah, these are medicines that are covered by insurance and you take them a few times over the course of your life versus a few times over the course of a day, vaccines are not profitable medicine. They have to induce companies to produce vaccines. So I always find it strange when they attack the profit margin drug companies profiting off vaccines. I think if they could find some way to have the government just make vaccines and give them out, they don't want to be in this business. The money they make off vaccination is
2: next to nothing when you compare it to any anti-cholesterol medicine. So the anti-vaxxers have absurd allegations about the negative impact of vaccines, specifically that they cause autism. But many evidence-free theories remain on the fringes of society. How have these similarly ill-informed folks had such a huge impact on normal, human, mainstream experience? And why is it so out of proportion to the evidence that supports their allegations? There are two essential answers. The first is that in the late 90s, a then-doctor named Andrew Wakefield published a paper in the prominent and well-respected British medical journal The Lancet that provocatively asserted, that in a small but significant number of children, the measles component of the MMR...
5: Remember, that's measles, mumps, and rubella.
2: ...vaccine stuck around the lining of the small intestine, causing a, quote, leaky gut. Then the paper leveraged a poorly regarded theory that suggested autistic kids, because they in some ways behaved similarly to opioid-addicted rats, were experiencing naturally occurring opioid peptides that were flooding their developing brains... And then that caused autism.
5: Jessard's just repeating a bunch of stuff he read. But suffice it to say that no matter how little of the proceeding we actually understand, proper medical authorities think that this conclusion is total hawkwash.
2: Eventually, the co-authors, and then the publication itself, distanced themselves from Wakefield and the paper's conclusions. But Andy Dubbs began a new career, positioning himself as a fearless advocate for families afflicted by autism, even as evidence of flaws in the original study began to mount, and new information appeared which reflected rather poorly on Wakefield's personal ethics. We're not going to belabor the finer points, though the information is readily available online. Suffice it to say that Wakefield's paper drew huge, unsupportable conclusions from limited tentative evidence, which upon review displayed a clear bias toward the subjective recollections of the kid's parents. Moreover, there was no sign that the vaccine viruses were found in any of the tissue that was supposedly affected in the kids that were tested, according to the theory. Or per Manukin.
5: The entire report wasn't built on a house of cards. There weren't any cards to begin with. The Dean of Research at the London School of Medicine called the study probably the worst paper that's ever been published in the history of The Lancet.
6: I was on a third-year pediatric rotation right about the time the, uh, the Wakefield article came out, and so the grouping or the name anti-vaxxers wasn't there, but the horror of someone releasing a paper, a published and well-supported at the moment paper in a respectable journal suggesting that that autism was the result of uh, vaccination and arguing against vaccination, it, it was notable for, for the instant outcry amongst, you know, standard Practicing physicians. It was instantaneous disbelief. It was, uh, you know, publishing an article that really would have very dangerous consequences if standard practicing physicians out in the community were to start following, you know, recommendations from a peer reviewed journal. It would, it would be as if, uh, you know, a dental journal published an article saying that flossing your teeth causes oral cavity cancer. It just ran counter to everything you'd recommend. And following, you know, a peer reviewed, a respected peer reviewed journal, it could really cause harm now or even you know in sort of my weird, small subspecialty, anytime someone publishes an article you know, with a small sample size or something that seems to run counter to the, the current state of the art, it, it comes with a, a letter from the editor explaining why it was published and inviting additional research. The problem is that once something's published, it exists as a PDF online, and then anyone can pull down that PDF and say, "Well, the reason I do this." which is in contradistinction to what everyone else in the world does is because of this article. It's being pulled out of a journal and you can wave that one paper around. it's a dangerous thing you know it's one thing if you're if you're treating you know sinus disease and things that run with that but it's another thing if you're treating kids who may end up with meningitis as a result of decisions made by other people for them
2: unfortunately the popular media at the time simply two-sided this controversy pitting essentially the entire expertise of all medical authorities in britain on one side and this one wakefield dude on the other as if those two things basically evened out and there was a major controversy And they also largely failed to cover the seemingly important fact that this same guy, nine months before the paper came out, had filed a patent for an alternative to the standard MMR vaccine, meaning of course that the more his paper discredited the standard MMR, the more he stood to gain financially.
5: Wait, fucking seriously? This asshole played the solo martyr while standing to profit from his own vaccine alternative? What kind of balls you gotta have?
2: I mean, I don't know. Presumably heavy, black and pendulous. You know, real clackers. That's the biggest balls
0: of all. I've got the big-
2: Regardless of how poor the scientific discipline and professional ethics of Wakefield were, the proper authorities in both the UK and the US reacted with a series of deep, evidence-based investigations to determine whether Wakefield's suggestions, or any of the other thimerosal, formaldehyde, or other anti-vax allegations, were backed up by actual data. After all of the evidence came in, there was simply no reason whatsoever to draw any of the conclusions Wakefield and co. had alleged. No mercury or measles in the gastrointestinal tracts of these kids. No correlation between time of vaccination and onset of symptoms in those affected. Nada. And once the evidence was in from the medical field, it fell to the legal authorities to put a stop to this nonsense, which they did, way back in 2009. The so-called special masters, empowered by the vaccine court to rule on issues related to all of the numerous autism vaccine lawsuits that had been filed in the U.S., issued its finding after six years of motions, counter-motions, and other legal maneuvering. Mnuchin.
5: In page after page of unexpectedly gripping legal writing, they laid out in a way that no journal article or literature review ever had just how one-sided this dispute actually was.
2: Offit piles on with this quote.
5: To conclude that the child's condition was the result of his MMR vaccine, an objective observer would have to be able to emulate Lewis Carroll's White Queen and be able to believe six impossible, or at least highly improbable, things before breakfast.
2: Ouch. And the judges also lambasted the so-called expert witnesses who had testified for the anti-vax side, noting that one had published a chart listing the causes of autism in an academic journal, but when he brought the same item to court, he had inexplicably added measles to that chart. In other words, he produced one more accurate chart for an audience of experts and another much less scientifically valid chart for the legal system where he was a paid witness for personal injury lawyers. The court pointed out that another witness, Dr. Jeff Bradstreet, stood to make bank from promoting the idea that MMR was dangerous through billing patients for supposed cures for the condition, some of which are themselves very dangerous. Also, there were the various purportedly helpful dietary supplements, which he also happened to sell. Briefly, let's review one of the medical procedures that Bradstreet, among many other anti-vax docs, vouches for. It's called chelation, or chelation, we're not really sure. It's supposed to rid the body of mercury. Remember, thimerosal, the demon chemical that Wakefield associated with autism, is a form of mercury, albeit one that's as chemically different from the dangerous versions of mercury as is the sodium in table salt different from the sodium metal that explodes violently when you put it in water. Anyway, here's how Manukin explains the procedure.
5: Chelation therapy is a process during which chemicals are introduced into the body to sever the bond between heavy metals and body tissue. Risks include vomiting, convulsions, irregular heartbeats, and death. There has never been a clinical trial testing chelation for autism. One government-funded trial was halted after scientists at Cornell University and UC Santa Cruz found that rats without heavy metal poisoning who were chelated showed signs of cognitive impairment.
2: So... Chelation is a risky procedure designed to remove heavy metals from poisoned individuals. You know, like victims of an industrial accident. But these assholes want to put kids with no detectable mercury through this horrific shit. A procedure so hazardous that healthy rats got so fucked up by it that responsible scientists cut a study short. They want to do this to remove imaginary mercury from kids who are already suffering from a debilitating condition.
5: What in the holy living fuck? Well, at least, thankfully, that huge definitive legal case put everything to rest. Why did you have me read that nonsense? They know your tricks. Just get on with it.
2: Shockingly, the bullshit artists weren't satisfied by getting their legal asses handed to them. In fact, if anything, the controversy between science and worried parents taking advice from dumb fucks has only intensified in recent years, spurred in no small part by two high-profile pseudo-documentaries, which we'll now cover in this special edition of And now, from the annals of Tinseltown, the paranoid strain goes to the movies. Normally, this segment is meant to highlight some truly great or important films touching on conspiracist topics, but this time we're making an exception and covering two irresponsible horseshit-spewing docs put out by anti-vaxxers, both of them well after the legal case and the science had already definitively settled the question of whether the MMR vaccine was linked to autism. First, we have the inevitable creed occur of one Mr. Andrew Wakefield. Note that I didn't say doctor. That's because eventually the UK authorities stripped him of his medical license altogether, both from ethical issues arising from his anti vax work and from a truly bizarre scenario in which he paid a bunch of little kids at a birthday party to give blood samples for an experiment he was conducting.
9: Pretty
5: standard kids' birthday party scheduling, really. A musical chairs, pin the tail on a donkey, get blood sucked out by a deranged ideologue, cake and ice cream.
2: So anyway, Mr. Wakefield and co. produced this movie called "Vaxed: From Cover-Up to Catastrophe. Wakefield's partner in crime on this was a guy named Del Bigtree, whose qualifications to comment on this topic are maybe a little wanting. To quote a Daily Beast story,
5: What he doesn't have is a medical degree or scientific training, though he does say he read a lot of medical material while working as a producer on the TV talk show The
2: Doctors.
14: As an investigative medical journalist, I've spent the last seven years working on one of the best medical talk shows in the world.
2: You know, sort of an ancillary spin-off show from Dr. Phil?
13: Doctor, give me the news.
2: Bunch of serious people in lab coats talking to housewives in midday syndicated time slots. does ring a bell? No? Yeah, us either. But apparently it's a solid substitute for a medical degree, per Mr. Bigtree who's desperate to prove we should listen to his bloviating. Okay, so he's highly qualified to speak on this topic. Obviously. But the facts are in, and the science didn't go the way Big Tree and Wakefield thought it should have. Why are we still talking about this?
14: We know in medicine that there have been many, many studies proving that vaccines do not cause autism. But the problem I have always had with that is thousands and thousands of parents all telling the same story. My child got a vaccine, usually the MMR vaccine, and then that night or the next day broke out in a fever. And then when they came out of the fever, lost speech, lost the ability to walk, basically regressed into what we know as autism and never came back. Doctors used to be told to listen to their patient. That was the cornerstone of medicine as we know it. But something's changed recently where the patient doesn't know what they're talking about. And these parents, with their story of their children, have just been written off as though they have no idea
2: what's really going on with their child. You hear that? Parental anecdotes mean we should ignore conclusive evidence. The attitude is, as long as you haven't told me definitively why this did happen, I'm still justified in blaming the one thing that all the evidence indicates didn't cause it to happen. Shit's fucked. Anyway, he and Wakefield made this film that purported to bring the claims of a CDC whistleblower named William Thompson to light. Said former CDC researcher reached out to an anti-vax father and activist named Brian Hooker. Hooker, at Wakefield's suggestion, began secretly recording these conversations, in which Thompson indicated that he had been part of a major CDC cover-up of evidence that the MMR vaccine was strongly linked to autism exclusively in African-American boys.
15: Deeply critical of their studies. And so the CDC decided that the scientist who was going to interface with me at that time was Dr. William Thompson. Because I was on his back, because he didn't like what I was saying about the statistics, I received a a letter from a CDC attorney in 2004 saying that I was no longer permitted to contact the CDC. Fast forwarding to 2014, Thompson said to me, Brian, if you listen to me and if you do what I tell you to do, I can guarantee you will be able to access a treasure trove of data. And I would like to guide you through these steps.
11: So I want to be a research. I want to be valuable to you. I want you to have someone in the system.
15: For years, I had been trying to crack this edifice of the CDC and just getting little glimpses of what was not right.
13: The CDC
11: has put the research 10 years behind. Because the CDC has not been transparent, we've missed 10 years of research because the CDC is so um, paralyzed right now by
5: anything related to autism.
2: Now, let's suppose for a moment that this was true.
5: It's not though.
2: It's not, and the reason you know that is because this is the first you're hearing about the story, right? Thought so. Do you think muckraking reporters wouldn't have jumped on this one if it had any real evidence? Exactly. Regardless, let's pretend there's something to it and run it through the scientific paces. As a post on the skeptical site Science Vlogs points out, this result, which again would indicate that there is an MMR autism link only in young African American boys, That result would mean that Wakefield's earlier studies, which linked a similar phenomenon to white British kids of both sexes, was incorrect. Here's the quote.
5: Of course, the key finding in Brian Hooker's paper is that Wakefield was wrong. Indeed, Wakefield even admits that he was mostly wrong about MMR and autism. Okay, he says we were partially right, but the flip side of that is that he must have been mostly wrong.
2: But as you might expect, Hooker's analysis gets worse from there. By his own admission, Hooker doesn't actually have any background in vaccine research that would qualify him to do an analysis of this type. And yet, he re-examined the data he received from Thompson in his own methodology and used it to derive a shocking conclusion.
15: I came up with my own analysis plan and I stepped through logically and systematically how the data should have been approached. I looked first of all at males versus females, then I looked at black males, the relative risk of them receiving an autism diagnosis was astronomical and it was highly statistically significant. I really had to scratch my head and say, I know nothing about the MMR vaccine.
2: And so that's when I- The site Science Based Medicine, run by actual doctors and scientists, provides an almost overwhelmingly thorough response to Hooker's analysis and basically every other spurious allegation brought up in this film, including Hooker's own story of how vaccines caused his son's autism. Here's the man himself in Vaxxed.
15: My son, Stephen, was born in February of 1998.
4: Steve, what does the cow say? Tweet, tweet.
15: Two weeks after his 15-month vaccines, then he lost all language. He
2: lost all eye contact. He'd pick him up and he would just hang limp. It's a very sad story, but the article's author, David Gorski notes,
5: Hooker's son was seen by his pediatrician 19 days after his vaccination and no such symptoms were recorded. Moreover, other court records note that the Hookers had reported decreased eye contact as early as 12 months.
2: The article is at pains to point out that this doesn't mean Mr. Hooker is lying. It just means that human memory, the kind that undergirds nearly all of the anecdotal evidence that Wakefield and co. want to use to upend hard scientific data, is simply unreliable. By the way, far be it from us to refute Hooker's findings. We wouldn't know the first thing about how to do so. And the problem is, when the qualified experts respond to this stuff, the refutation can be virtually impenetrable to our liberal arts minds. Take this bit of apparently helpful jargon from the article.
5: In the total sample, the group without MR was basically the same result as was supposedly hidden. Odds ratio 2.45 compared to 2.48, with confidence interval from 1.2 to 5.0 compared to 1.16 to 5.31, which is to say, the CDC published the result that Mr. Wakefield claims was hidden.
2: Sure, uh, clear as day. But real talk. Consider this. Literally no respectable and impartial medical practitioner has been sufficiently convinced by this film's allegations, in the three years since it was released, to call for any medical authorities to even re-examine the evidence that's supposedly in contention. Meaning that, for those who are most qualified to comment on these topics, it's probably not very convincing. The other element that pervades the film is the idea that autism is new. The good Dr. Cap'n already addressed this issue, of course, but it's clear that the filmmakers expect viewers to see the combination of hookers' allegations and the supposedly runaway increase in autism.
5: Which, again, is more about the improvements in diagnosis and the tremendous broadening of the types of conditions that are considered part of the autism spectrum these days than the work of some mysterious autism X factor wrecking havoc on the youth of America.
2: And finally, the numerous heartbreaking and clearly honest stories told by parents in the film whose children have been affected by autism. Together, all of these factors are supposed to overwhelm the scientific evidence that has already been considered and rejected. It's a cynical attempt to do an end run around responsible analysis, and in the end, it's kind of sickening. None of that stopped Robert De Niro from trying to show it at his Tribeca Film Festival and get it a much larger audience. Thankfully, he was forced to pull it as responsible documentarians threatened to boycott the festival. De Niro is the parent of a child with autism, and except for his unmistakable voice, would be indistinguishable from any of the other parents who are unwilling to accept that the scientific and legal case has already been closed.
16: I think the movie is something to, that people should see, but definitely there's something to that movie, and there's another movie called Trace Amounts, and these there are, there's a lot of information about things that are happening with the CDC, the pharmaceutical companies, there's a lot of things that are not said. I as a parent of a child who has autism, I'm concerned and I want to know the truth and I'm not anti-vaccine, I want safe vaccines. When you get, a, some people can't get a, 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 a certain type of shot and they, they can die from it, you know, even penicillin. So why should that not be with vaccine? The thing is, if they shut it down, there's no reason to. If, if, if you're a scientist, let's see, let's hear. Everybody doesn't seem to want to hear much about it. It's shut down. And you guys are the ones that should be the investigating, do the investigating. And they don't. nobody seems to want to address that, or they say they've addressed it, and it's a closed issue. But it doesn't seem to be, because there are many people who will come out and say, no, I saw my kid change like overnight, mm-hmm. I saw what happened, and I should have done something, and I didn't. So there's more to this than than meets the eye, believe me. Is that, is that the experience you had, Robert? Something changed overnight? Uh, it, my wife says that I don't remember, but there was I, my my child is autistic, and every kid is different. But there is something there. There's something there that people aren't addressing, and for me to get
2: so upset here today, on the today. In fact, around a year after that recording, he announced a hundred thousand dollar prize to anyone who could prove that vaccines were safe.
5: Again, the way it's phrased here, this is the equivalent of asking for the impossible, proving the negative.
2: But now it's time for us to talk about the other celebrity who joined with Raging Bull on this announcement, namely Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and his prominent role in promoting an equally risible film, 2014's Trace Amounts. Both the movie and RFK Jr., author of the screed Thimerosal Let the Science Speak, are specifically focused on the many asserted evils of the demon-preservative Thimerosal.
11: Limerosal doesn't make the, the vaccine more effective, it's just simply a preservative.
4: It is only added to vaccines, so pharmaceutical companies can be
2: lazy and unsterile during their manufacturing and have a very cheap option to give vaccine shelf life.
10: And having an adequate supply of vaccine is very
8: important.
2: Okay, well let me follow up on that then.
8: Single shot vials, does that need thimerosal?
10: No, they don't, but they well, don't.
8: Why don't we have single There are a
1: lot of manufacturing issues associated with switching over. You need much more filling capacity for the lines.
2: You have all the benefit of Maxine without using mercury. Mercury has always been an option. And even though other options are available, the incredible risk of using thimerosal is taken solely because it's the cheapest. So, this theory has nothing to do with the greater good, it has everything to do with the greater greed. Yeah, yeah, rapacious corporations only using deadly mercury out of rapacious greed, rapacious, rapacious, yada, yada. We've already dealt with this previously, but while the preservative continues to be used in shots intended for older kids and adults, like the flu shot, it is worth noting that out of an abundance of caution, and in spite of a lack of evidence of harm, it was removed from all of the vaccines given to infants way back in 2001.
5: And in case you can't guess, this removal has had exactly zero effect on the supposedly ever-growing autism epidemic.
2: And so, having toured through many of the vectors through which information about vaccines has been transmitted through our body politic, we turn to the two with seemingly the most direct impact on our current crisis, namely celebrity anti-vaxxers and social media. I
0: can sleep at night, I've got this hole in my just is it right? We’ve got to ring the alarm
2: Usually when discussing the foibles of conspiracy-friendly celebrities, we include them in our patented profile in crazy segments. But this time there are too many of them to be so contained.
5: But don't worry, we're going to wind this episode up with a real profiling crazy humdinger.
2: Garden variety celebrity anti-vaxxers run the gamut, and of course feature plenty of people who aren't really expected to have a fucking clue what they're talking about including
3: jim carrey is really upset with california governor jerry brown for signing a new vaccination law this week the rule makes vaccines mandatory for all school children regardless of their religious and personal beliefs carrey went off on Twitter and called Governor Brown a corporate fascist who must be stopped. Kerry believes that vaccines contain harmful chemicals and compounds, including mercury and thimerosal. By getting vaccinated, he claims children become at risk for mercury poisoning. Kerry also called the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention corrupt for not being able to solve a problem they supposedly helped start. He'd rather vaccines be free of chemicals. And as he puts it, just take the neurotoxins out of the vaccines.
2: Jenna Elfman, Charlie Sheen, and Rob Schneider. But this group also includes people who in other areas seem to have a semblance of good sense. This list would include journalists like former CBS reporter Cheryl Atkinson, as well as famous TV hosts and interviewers like Larry King and notably Bill Maher in this particularly embarrassing conversation with RFK Jr. Number 2.
11: Wait, is... Just let me ask a broader question here. Okay. I just why can't we have a kind of a grand bargain on this it just seems like we're calling each other kooks and liars and it seems like common sense that vaccines i mean even thermarisol probably don't hurt most people i mean if they did we'd all be dead because they're in a lot of vaccines that we all took but some do Obviously, some minority get hurt by this stuff. I don't understand why this is controversial, why we have this emotional debate about something that there is science there. I, it, it astounds me that liberals who are always suspicious of corporations, and you just laid out that case, and defending minorities, somehow when it comes to this minority that's hurt, it's like, you know what? Shut the fuck up. And let me take every vaccine that Merck wants to shove down my throat.
2: There's also arguably the most influential of all celebrity anti-vaxxers. I'll leave it to y'all to determine whether he belongs in the seems to have good sense or the not really expected to have a fucking clue categories.
16: Just the other day, two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very,
2: very sick, now is autistic. Then there are the legitimate medical professionals. Celebrity doctors like Dr. Oz have made comments that seem squishy on the topic of vaccines, but one stands above the pack in terms of irresponsibility. Of particular note for his monstrous cynicism and coddling of the senseless prejudices of his well-educated and affluent audience is Dr. Bob Sears, a member of a family doctoring dynasty famous for their library of books aimed at young parents. Sears himself in 2007 put out The Vaccine Book, Making the Right Decision for Your Child. Now, obviously, we've covered some really awful claims and actions throughout this episode, but something about Dr. Bob, as he prefers to style himself, really sticks in our craw.
5: Maybe it's because he's a real doctor with sterling credentials who should know better. But it's also because of his sheer hubris.
2: The book purports to find a sensible middle ground between the mainstream medical opinion on vaccines and the concerns of worried parents. The main points we want to note are that Dr. Bob created his own alternative vaccine schedule, and that he abuses the concept of herd immunity. First, Dr. Bob's alternative schedule. We just told you this guy is a legit doctor, but it's pretty unusual for an MD without any specific training in immunology or public health to simply create an alternative approach to a mainstream procedure based exclusively on his own personal instincts and experience as a pediatrician. Offit also notes that Sears' rationale in changing the recommended dates for babies to be immunized are based on his concerns about aluminum-containing vaccines, which Offit points out is the third most abundant element on Earth and permeates the air and water.
5: And especially food, including pancake mix, self-rising flour, baking powder, processed cheese, and cornbread. Babies receive aluminum through both breast milk and formula, equal to between 10 and 30 milligrams by the time they're six months old. All childhood vaccines combined contain a whopping four milligrams.
2: And as Dr. Captain Rob would tell you, vaccines aren't a significant source of aluminum. Aluminum is an adjuvant.
6: Aluminum is something that is added to your vaccination to improve your body's immunologic response. There are several different things that will do this. Aluminum has been used forever, so it has, it has the power of history with it. Also, aluminum is something that's in your body. I mean, you you can't not have aluminum that occurs in, in your bloodstream. With testing, you can always demonstrate there's some level of aluminum. It's not some foreign material that is put into you. It's specifically used to exaggerate your immune response and improve the body's development of antibodies, the desired result of vaccination. And so there, there are other adjuvants. Aluminum is the one that I think has been used the most. It has some historical benefits to it. And, you know, people who prepare vaccinations are familiar with it. But it's also safe. Uh, people aren't dying of aluminum toxicity.
2: We'd be remiss if we failed to remind you that Rob also helped us shoo away nonsense about evil aluminum conspiracies in our Chemtrails episode. In that one, the government is spraying aluminum from the sky to give us all Alzheimer's disease or something. Why do we mention this? Because for reasons we still don't understand, the Paranoid Strain Orchestra decided to record us a theme song for that show more than a year after we already put the episode up.
5: Don't ask us why they created a brand new theme for an existing, already published show. We don't know.
2: But we're just dying for an excuse to play it for you, and this one will do.
0: in the sky. Heavy metal in my eyes.
13: can Oh, can
2: Classic. But getting back to Dr. Bob, Othit is clearly dumbfounded by the man's hubris in ignoring all of the science offered by the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics in favor of creating his own vaccine schedule.
5: It's all the more amazing when one considers that Robert Sears has never published a paper on vaccine science, never reviewed a vaccine license application, never participated in the creation, testing, or monitoring of a vaccine, and never developed an expertise in any field that intersects with vaccines. And parents trust him, oddly, because he doesn't have expertise in vaccine science.
2: The single grossest thing we learned about Dr. Bob in our research is this. He essentially tells worried parents that, even if they skip vaccinating their unique and precious little snowflakes, herd immunity produced by the actions of responsible parents will probably protect all the kids anyway.
5: Wait, hold on. I'm a parent too. Did this motherfucker seriously say this?
2: Oh, fuck yes. Discussing parents who made this choice, he says the following.
5: Is this selfish? Perhaps. But as parents, you have to decide. Are you supposed to make decisions that are good for the country as a whole? Or do you base your decisions on what's best for your child as an individual? Can we fault parents for putting their own child's health ahead of other kids around them? Hey, wait up. I want to answer Dr. Bob. And the answer is yes. Yes, we can fault them but not as much as we can fault you for using your medical authority to spread such awful, reprehensible, cynical, damaging advice. Shame on you.
2: Please, no one tell her he also advises parents who are going to skip vaccines and count on herd immunity, not to mention this fact to their own friends who have kids, lest the word spread this approach become too popular and his shitty advice eventually topple the very thing these ridiculous parents are banking their children's health on. Or that by Offutt's estimate, there are about 500,000 people currently in the US who, for actual legitimate medical reasons, literally cannot be vaccinated, and that all of these people are depending on everyone who's healthy to do the right thing, and Bob Sears is putting every one of these innocent people in danger.
5: I swear to God, these motherfuckers.
2: But of course, no discussion of the effect celebrities have had on keeping anti vax nonsense percolating through our national consciousness. Would be complete without the attractive blonde face of the movement, Jenny McCarthy. From famous Playboy playmate of the 90s to MTV host to bit parts in film comedies, few would have foreseen the mid-career transformation of Jenny McCarthy from a reliable source of fart jokes.
10: Ma, did you hear that? Hear what?
2: To a commentator on parenting and other issues. But transition she has, including a stint as one of the chatting ladies on the apparently immortal gabfest, The View, for example. Certainly though, her biggest current cultural cachet is as the face of the anti-vax movement. Not that she would agree with that characterization, of course.
10: I'm not, nor is the autism community anti-vaccine.
1: We are not an anti-vaccine community. We are an intelligent group of parents that know the importance of having vaccines. We're not saying to not vaccinate, we're saying educate yourself. Vaccines are safe for some kids. Vaccines are not safe for some kids. Let's protect the ones who are weak.
2: In fact, none of the irresponsible modern celebrities, doctors, parents, filmmakers, authors, journalists, or others we've discussed in this episode would consider themselves as against vaccines. They would say they're pro-safe vaccines. Their advocacy just happens to include constantly spreading misinformation that has the effect of reducing public trust in what are already safe, effective vaccinations. Apparently, there's a difference between these two stances. McCarthy, like nearly all of those who oppose vaccines, has a child affected by a condition that she believes is related to an early immunization. What makes her story different is, initially, she concocted a completely different, equally unsupported storyline to explain her then-young son's developmental differences from other children. This first narrative began when a stranger passing her and four-year-old Evan on a Los Angeles street informed her out of nowhere that McCarthy was, and we're definitely quoting here, an indigo, and that Evan was a crystal, before this person then faded into the urban backdrop as only a lunatic purveyor of confident nonsense can. While most parents would have responded to this experience with a brief, reflective, well, that was weird, before going on about their days, McCarthy chose to see it as the gospel truth, immediately adopting the New Age belief that her boy was one of a select group of crystals who would lead humanity to a new evolutionary stage. Manukin helpfully explains that,
5: Parents of crystals recognize each other through the purplish aura they emit, hence their designation as indigos. Well, thank goodness that's all cleared
2: up now. So McCarthy launched herself into her new role, creating the site indigomoms.com, designing and selling merch and various therapies of dubious medical or scientific value you know, the usual. But after this idea failed to catch on with the public, she did an abrupt about face and suddenly realized that Evan's condition was not a sign of his glorious New Age future but rather evidence of the evil pharmaceutical vaccine conspiracy. Now this idea had legs. Jenny
11: McCarthy and her relentless quest to help her autistic son. Can a child
16: recover from autism? Actress, author, and autism advocate Jenny McCarthy fought for answers when the developmental disorder struck her son Evan.
0: I'm here with Jenny McCarthy, who has become one of the most vocal advocates for parents of children with autism.
2: Almost immediately, McCarthy became by far the most recognizable anti-vax celebrity, eventually bringing successive romantic partners Jim Carrey and Donnie Wahlberg into the fold as well. Along the way, she of course did untold damage to the cause of providing parents with accurate medical information. But even more importantly, her prominence in the movement came about at the time that the technology was making it easier to transmit and support fallacious information than ever before. And so we reach the final topic of our survey of the anti-vax forces that confront us in this still young century social media is
8: here is an example of a kind of misinformation that has been spread on facebook in fact some of it's actively disinformation that is people willfully misleading others this is a group called stop mandatory vaccinations and this claim in this post that it's impossible to eradicate measles misinformation vaccine- about
15: vaccines spreading in the u.s is now popping up on cell phones across india hindering programs from distributing vaccinations as a result Dozens of schools have refused to let health officials vaccinate students.
10: The One anti-vaccination movement is growing and more children are getting sick, really sick due to a new wave of conspiracy theories that have been shared through social media. Why does that matter? Well,
3: currently in Clark County, Washington, an area known the disease as anti-vax considered eliminated in the United States, misinformation surrounding the safety of vaccines is not new. But the current spread has been driven in large part by social media private and public Facebook groups share images and videos of children with disturbing health issues. Alleged-
2: you don't need us to tell you this, but your Facebook and Twitter feeds are like bullshit superconductors, where polished anti-science notions spread with virtually no resistance. There's no better example than anti-vax ideas. Manukin characterizes this situation with a reference to prominent professors Timur Karan and Cass Sunstein's concept of an availability cascade.
5: A self-reinforcing process of collective belief formation by which an expressed perception triggers a chain reaction, that gives a perception increasing plausibility through its rising availability in public discourse. In this instance, the believability of the notion that vaccines cause autism has grown in proportion to the number of people talking about it, as opposed to the theory's actual legitimacy.
2: The duo identified this phenomenon in the pre-Facebook year 1999, but if anything, our modern attention magnets have only made it more salient as an explanation. The profusion of anti-vax Facebook groups, Twitter conversations, etc., in and of themselves make motivated believers think their ideas must be super legitimate. After all, everyone they know is talking about nothing else. The results, unfortunately, speak for themselves. Over the past several years, the effects of all of this ignorant posting, video-making and other nonsense has come home to roost, with outbreaks in pockets across the United States. Some immigrant communities, like Somali Americans, have been particularly hard hit, their community leaders having apparently fallen under the siren song of native US anti-vaxxers to their neighbors' detriment.
1: Minneapolis is home to the largest Somali community in America, and the area known as Little Mogadishu has become ground zero for a major outbreak of measles. The 78 cases reported in Minnesota so far are more than what the entire country experienced in all of 2016. The vaccination rate for measles, mumps, and rubella, or MMR, has plummeted among Somali-Americans there over the last 10 years.
9: Don't listen, doctor. Don't listen, anybody. Listen to your rights.
1: Partly because anti-vaxxers have been targeting the community with messaging that falsely links the MMR vaccine to autism.
2: Thankfully, recent developments have given us a tiny sliver of a reason for optimism.
1: So
16: Facebook coming out and saying that they are bringing in effectively new guidelines about this, quoting the concerns from authorities leading global health organizations such as the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have publicly identified verifiable vaccine hoaxes if those vaccine hoaxes appear on Facebook, we will take action against them. So, effectively warning people, taking down advertising, dealing with this. This
2: has In addition, prominent mainstream comedians from John Oliver,
16: by getting vaccinated, you're helping and protecting those who are most vulnerable, like sick people and newborns too young to be vaccinated. And why would you choose not to do that? I believe Jesus Christ himself put it best when he said Do you seriously need some sort of wise quote to convince you on this one? Just
2: like, don't be a dick. To Jimmy Kimmel.
15: But still sizable group of people who are choosing not to vaccinate their children. Here in LA, there are schools in which 20% of the students aren't vaccinated because uh, parents here are more scared of gluten than they are of smallpox. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we invited some real doctors to address this. Again, these are... These are not actors. These are actual medical professionals. Every one of them is a real doctor. So hear them out and then decide for yourself.
3: I am a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor.
4: I'm a doctor. doctor. And I believe in vaccinations. And I believe in vaccinations.
1: If you don't vaccinate your kids,
3: it can endanger their lives.
4: The potential downsides of vaccinations are almost
8: non-existent. The cumulative scientific and medical communities are in absolute full agreement that there is basically no reason not to vaccinate your kids. No reason. Which is why
4: I cannot f- believe we have to make this PSA. I thought we settled this in the 50s.
10: Hey, remember that time you got polio? No, you don't, because your parents got you f- vaccinated.
2: Have been delivering brutal takedowns of this horseshit for years, rallying viewers to the cause of science and public health. Many of the states that have been hardest hit by ignorance-driven disease outbreaks have made wise public policy changes that are helping to curb the threat, including both our home, California.
15: Next year, by the way, all, nearly all public school children in California will have to be vaccinated with almost no excuses accepted there. Governor Jerry Brown has just signed a bill that imposes one of the nation's strictest school vaccination laws in the country. The measure was prompted by a measles outbreak at Disneyland back in December that sickened more than 100 people. Kids who are homeschooled or have a serious medical condition can be exempt, but a personal or religious
2: exemption will not cut it there. Joining me now. Is the- and the current outbreak epicenter, New York City. New York
5: City is taking action today after seeing one of the largest outbreak of measles in decades. Today, officials there declared a public health emergency and ordered that a vaccination that vaccinations be mandatory for certain communities. Here to explain is our Megan Bachelor
3: Megan. Yeah. Well, Carol, this is a drastic move for what officials are calling a drastic situation. 300 cases of measles in New York City and they're hoping that this drastic move will perhaps stop the spread of this highly contagious virus. So here's a look at the area that's affected. It's in Williamsburg, which is outside of Brooklyn. There are four zip codes that are affected and so those living in those zip codes must get the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. The outbreak has mainly been confined to the the Orthodox Jewish, Jewish community there, and anyone found to have not received the vaccine will be fined $1,000."
2: But the problem persists. You may have noticed that both the aforementioned Somalis and Orthodox Jews have been particularly hard hit by measles outbreaks in recent years. Apparently the link between the two groups is their distrust of the government, which is spilling over into distrust of government-endorsed medical policies, however well-founded. And the consequences of such distrust internationally can be much, much worse.
9: Five female health workers involved in a vaccination programme to eradicate polio have been shot dead in Pakistan. The coordinated attacks claimed the lives of four close to Karachi and one in Peshawar. The murders have forced the UN immunisation programme in Karachi to be suspended. No group has claimed responsibility for the killings, but the Taliban has denounced the programme as a Western plot
5: we should mention that USS espionage helped set the stage for that bit of horrific violence as the CIA used a fake vaccination program as cover when it was casing Osama bin Laden's joint in advance of the raid that took him out. Small wonder those murderous piece of shit Taliban fucks now shoot vaccinators on sight.
2: It's tough to see how this situation will improve anytime soon, especially given the truly hallucinatory political times we live in now. But it's important for all of us to keep fighting the good fight. The price we're paying is not simply measured in the health of our children. It's also a potential money sink that can put a real strain on a community or a nation. An episode of NPR's The Indicator podcast tried to quantify the costs that can accrue when anti-vax sentiment causes an outbreak.
1: And some of the people who get measles don't survive. And that is obviously a cost that can't be calculated. But there are a lot of costs that can costs to an individual, to a community, and to the country. And some of these costs can be really high. Maria and a team of colleagues just published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association exploring some of the different costs of a measles outbreak.
8: And the first cost to consider in a disease outbreak is the individual case. And this includes all kinds of factors, uh, community outreach, tracking down people who might have come in contact with that person.
1: So indicator number one, how much does one case of measles cost?
3: In general, we think the average cost of a measles case is about $1,000.
1: But this can vary a lot. Maria and her team found one case of a student who got on an international flight after contracting measles. And tracking down all of the people that he might have infected and setting up all of that outreach cost more than $140,000 just for that one case.
8: OK, now for cost factor number two, our second indicator, healthcare. care. Maria says about one in four measles patients will end up in a hospital. So how much does that
3: cost? The average cost of a hospitalization is a little under $10,000.
1: Indicator number two. About $10,000. That is the average cost of one measles patient in the hospital.
8: Of course, the biggest cost by far isn't the individual case or one particular hospital stay. It's the community response, the protocol that's put in place to try and contain an outbreak. Maria and her colleagues calculated the cost of a measles outbreak to a community to be between $2.7 and $5.3 million.
1: And when you factor all of these things together, Maria says a worst case scenario measles outbreak would cost the U.S. nearly $4
5: billion. And the U.S. spends about $45 million for the measles component of uh, the measles monstrubella vaccine just to avoid that burden, that cost. So
1: they're spending $45 million like subsidizing vaccines, I guess? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm.
3: To avoid this almost $4 billion annually uh, potential cost. Well, that seems like
1: a good return on investment
3: yeah it's it's
8: one of the best returns on investment and that's not even
2: and our home state of louisiana as always refuses to be outdone when there's stupidity afoot by the way quick shout out to mom jesuit she knew we were on this subject and she pointed this genius out to ensure that he received our ridicule also the guy's name is john milkovich No, 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 no. Milkovich with an I. And he's basically just a one-man recapitulation of all of the stupid we've covered so far.
9: There is a very contentious scientific debate that's going on right now in America and has been for decades in which many are saying that these vaccinations pose danger. For example, when Senator Lambert and I were growing up, autism did not exist. Many of you may know that some of the leading researchers in America say that autism is a result of vaccination. Did you know that the childhood vaccinations that we now require are multiple? Many times the vaccinations that were required 30 or 40 years ago. Did you know that? Tissue from aborted babies is now used in vaccines. Did you know that vaccines use aluminum, which is shown to be a neurotoxin? Did you know that vaccines in America are preserved often with uh, mercury, which is beyond neurotoxic? It's the beginning of an electronic digital data bank on the people of this room. Have you been vaccinated? Point
5: of order.
2: The chair recognizes Representative Unicorn.
5: We would like to note that he didn't simply parrot existing bullshit. He also added some new nonsense about aborted babies and an electronic digital data bank. whatever the fuck that means.
2: The record will reflect the representative's valid point. This dude has some novel dumb fuckery of his own to say, and thus deserves recognition as a purveyor of unique horseshit. We've said everything we really really needed to say about this topic, and we hope that you'll remember some of this stuff so that you can be a positive influence on the health of our species through your future wise counsel to the well-intentioned, fearful, and gullible folks you know and love. We've really enjoyed being your conspiracy-bashing podcast of choice these last few years. And damn it, we're really going to miss it.
5: Wait, are you quitting?
2: Oh, fuck no. Given my druthers, I'll be doing this till I'm a withered, desiccated husk of a man. Both incompetent and, ideally, incontinent. But unfortunately, I think we may not have a chance to do another episode. Because we're about to do something... dangerous.
5: What the fuck are you talking about?
2: I'm talking about speaking truth to power. Not political power. The real power.
5: Wait, um, you're not... Oh, Jesuit, no, please don't. Think of our families.
2: Dana, I'm sorry I have to do this. I'm so sorry to drag you along. But it's time for the most dangerous profiling crazy we will ever attempt.
5: May God have mercy on our souls.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. So who, who could strike this kind of terror into the hearts of your fearful host and his fearless lady counterpart? Well, we'll give you a clue. Good
13: morning.
10: Dry you I'm coming down.
5: Here we go. You get disappeared. And you get deleted. Everybody gets eliminated. And our next victim is... Fearful Jesuit!
2: Yeah, we're doing this. We're taking on the most powerful person in the world. But someone's gotta say it. For all of the good things she's done over the past three-plus decades, Oprah Winfrey has done more to give a platform to questionable medical and scientific claims than any other individual, simply by dint of the size of her audience and her unwillingness to criticize her guests' fervently held beliefs, no matter how loop-de-loo those beliefs happen to be. As Julia Beluz put it in a Vox article,
5: During her reign as host of The Oprah Winfrey Show from 1986 to 2011, Oprah repeatedly showed a weakness for crackpots and quack medical theories.
2: Now, for purposes of this episode, clearly the biggest sin was her embrace of Blondie McKill Kids.
5: People don't know that's your pet name for Jenny McCarthy.
2: Fair enough. Oprah had McCarthy on as far back as 2007 to peddle her ill-informed twaddle about how vaccines harmed her child. But hosting vaccine deniers is just the tip of the nonsense iceberg when it comes to the big O. Over the years, Oprah's undeniable talent and charisma has unfortunately provided many bullshit peddlers with a veneer of respectability. For example, I'm assuming some of you are old enough to remember the bizarre cultural cachet that was briefly held by The Secret, a totally baseless bit of puffery whereby, and here we're quoting the skeptical assholes at the invaluable Rational Wiki site, practitioners believe...
5: Thinking about some goal and behaving as though you've already achieved that goal will cause the universe to bring that goal closer to actually happening.
0: It is the secret to creating the life you truly want. Make more money, lose weight, fall in love, land your dream job. Isn't that amazing? This is life-changing. I'm ready for that, yeah. Okay, now the choir's going. Jump in, anybody. Find out the secret and see why people everywhere are talking about it. The secret. In the past few months, Talk about this DVD has been spreading around the world. We've heard from people in Europe, in Canada, all the way down under in Australia, which is so fascinating because when I watched The Secret, I realized I've always lived by The Secret. I didn't know it was a secret.
10: (laughs) I
13: didn't know it was a secret.
10: Why do you call it The Secret? We really needed to contain the, contain the knowledge in, in a couple of words. The secret is the law of attraction. Okay, so what do you mean by that? The law of attraction, I would describe as the most powerful law in the universe. Law of attraction says that like attracts like. And what we do is we attract into our lives the things that we want. And that is based on what we're thinking and feeling. It's not the other way around. So what you're saying is...
2: is Sure. The infinite majesty of space and time is deeply concerned about whether or not you get a sweet discount on that lightly used 2015 Jetta. Will it into existence, young Padawan. But the nonsense artists who peddled this got a huge launching pad from Oprah's syndicated self-affirmation cult. Jesuit, you might be thinking. What's the harm in a bunch of unfulfilled midday TV watchers doing some self-affirmation? Well, I mean, lots. This sort of idea encourages people to offload the pursuit of their fondest dreams onto the whims of the ill-defined universe, instead of exhorting them to put in a little effort toward those dreams every day. Which, to pull back the curtain, is exactly the method we use to ensure y'all get a new episode every couple of months. Who's next on the cavalcade of O'Pravian horsepucky? How about James Arthur Ray? He's a self-help guru turned felon who served a prison stint after his sweat lodge therapy resulted in three deaths
15: a ceremony led by new age guru James Ray
4: there's at least one area of your life where you know you deserve more
15: a disaster and a falling from grace that has focused a harsh spotlight on the 11 billion dollar a year unregulated self-help
2: industry or Deepak Chopra, a person whose every utterance betrays not only an almost parodic lack of understanding of the cutting-edge quantum mechanics whose conclusions he twists to his own ends, but also a lack of humility that borders on psychosis.
12: What's your name? Uh, Leonard Mladenov. Uh And so, Leonard, uh, you are a uh, quantum I'm physicist. A physicist. I'm a theoretical physicist. Form of this would be to Deepak to say, um, would you like to have a short course in quantum mechanics sometime, so that we can straighten out your slightly misuse of quantum notation
7: I, thank you I, I would be honored sir and i accept your offer with great gratitude and uh, i would like to be educated so i can be clearer in my um, in my dialogue by the way today is einstein's birthday so we are at a very fitting place and uh, it just occurred to me 3 3.14, 3.14 is the approximation of uh, the first approximation of pi, which refers to infinity. So uh, as long as your quantum f- physics explanations help me understand infinity, I would be honored.
12: That would be good. But we'll have to keep it local, though. I don't think we can make it non-local.
7: <laughs> no, but, can, can, but, I, can I bother you for just a second?
12: Do what you, is it? Do, what you, is it?
7: Sir, do you, sir, believe in the infinite?
12: Um, I, I, I believe I understand, to some extent, the concept of infinity. I'm not sure what it means to believe in the infinite.
7: OK. Do you think Do you think that your mathematics requires the infinite to explain things that you explain to people?
12: We do use the concept of infinity quite, quite a lot. Thank yeah, you. We do. You're welcome.
15: <laughs> what is it about Deepak's use of quantum physics? that
12: bothers you the term non-local uh, the use was not correct and the correlations of the I don't know the pacemaker and the different electrical things no, I happen going to
7: on to disagree by the way
12: Oh, I assume People you told, did since you said that you but, but,
7: you but, but, I happen but to so I would love to uh, um,
12: I'd love to talk See, about it I think it consciousness
7: is non-local I'm sorry I think consciousness is non-local
12: Conscious death? Consciousness. 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 Oh, Is I, yeah, you know, I've never really run across a definition of consciousness that I understood. So maybe you could te- teach me something and I can. A
7: field, uh, a superposition of possibilities.
12: <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> all right. I, I, uh, I know what all each of those words means. I, I still don't think I,
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> still worse, there are the more or less quote unquote doctors. Who have been boosted by their association with lady o
11: is i am here advocating for your children against a woman who you say is severely attacking and undermining their credibility their self-esteem and just their overall general adjustment and i am in the middle of what I think is a pretty intelligent and fact-based conversation with her about stopping that, and you want to interrupt me so you can engage with her. You know, my dad used to tell me, never pass up a good chance to shut up.
2: (laughs) Technically, of course, Phil McGraw isn't an actual doctor. He has a PhD, but that means he's exactly as much of a doctor as my cousin, the history professor, who at least has the decency not to make everyone call her Dr. Cousin Jesuit. But as much of a folksy bullshit artist as that guy is, we have fewer objections to him than we do for her longtime support and partnership with Dr. Mehmet Oz. This man is unquestionably a talented and highly credentialed surgeon. But his record of support for unscientific nonsense is abysmal, as you can hear when senators were raking him over the coals a few years ago.
11: Do you believe that there's a miracle pill out there? There's not a pill that's going to help you long term lose weight and live your, the best life without diet and exercise. Do you believe there's a magic weight loss cure out there? It, it the, the word, if you're selling something because it's magical, no. Right, right, that, <laughs> that would be ridiculous. No one is
16: claiming there's a magic pill out there, that would be stupid.
11: This little bean has scientists saying they found a magic weight loss cure for every body type.
13: See,
16: he never said there was a magic pill. He said there was a magic bean. <laughs> That's clearly entirely different because magic beans are a very real thing that you trade your cow for so you can steal a golden harp from a giant. That's science.
2: Sterling credentials are no, this sort of behavior eventually spurred more responsible medical professionals to action.
1: There's nothing ambiguous in the letter 10 doctors wrote about Dr. Mehmet Oz to the dean of Columbia University's medical school. We are surprised and dismayed that Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons would permit Dr. Mehmet Oz to occupy a faculty appointment. He has repeatedly shown disdain for science and for evidence-based medicine. He has manifested an egregious lack of integrity by promoting quack treatments and cures in the interest of personal financial gain. Dr. Joel Tepper signed the letter.
4: He has touted many drugs as miracle drugs for weight loss which causes people to spend huge amounts of money for treatments that have no benefit whatsoever. He
1: said at most universities, if someone did this...
4: That is grounds for dismissal.
1: Columbia University responded, telling CNN they won't stop faculty members from speaking their minds.
2: In a state- Look, we're human beings, which means that when we listen to Oprah Winfrey talk, we find her just as charismatic and relatable as does every other normally functioning vertebrate. She's talented. She's inspiring. She's a supporter of any number of laudable causes. She has encouraged literacy, empathy, patience, kindness, and a host of other wonderful, deeply human virtues. Her personal story is an inspiration to people of color and women around the world, but she's also provided a platform for anti-vaxxers and other pseudoscientists to spread their insidious highly communicable paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit us on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. We'd also love to see you and your opinions pop up in the safe, gentle confines of our eponymous Facebook group. Ask to join and, like Will Smith turned inexplicably blue, we'll grant your wish. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Haas, Big Mucho put together our super duper website and helps in 1.3 million other ways, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. And wants you to know that, while he might be a little weird on the moon in 9-11, he still knows you should vaccinate your fucking kids. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next couple of episodes, we're going to do something kind of different. Exploring in-depth the ideas that people have held throughout history that suggest reality itself is not what it seems. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
3: Father, Fearful Jesuit, and to all you concerned, aunts, uncles, grandpas, and grandmas, and especially your dedicated, conscientious parents, I just want to say that you folks either have direct control or serious, respectful influence on whether or not the innocent kids in your families get vaccinated. So I hope you step up to the challenge. Vaccinate your trusting children So they don't get horrible, preventable diseases that could sicken or even, heaven forbid, kill them. And even more importantly, so they don't accidentally give them to me. This is really important. We kids are truly counting on you. Don't give in to the scary, paranoid strain.